Hello, my fellow Astorians. Welcome to Valar Ruritus for Duncan Egg, the Mystery Night, Part 3, the third. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Astorians? You know, Aziz, one of these times we should do the intro music a cappella. <laughs> we should just be like... Yeah, like lounge singers, yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. That's a very good idea, Sean. You're full of good ideas. Uh, but are, We're open to submissions, by the yeah. way. <laughs> but are you full of good beverages? No, you're full of weird beverages. What are you drinking today? Weird and good are often the same. That's true. That's true. Weird is often good. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely on team weird being good most of the time. This is the Red Machine Naked Drink oh. mixed with black cherry sparkling ice. Oh. And red Mountain Dew, code red. Well, you got to go red with red. You're on theme anyway. That's good. <laughs> you got to have, well, you're, you got to match your clothing and your beverages, right? That's, that's <laughs> how you look sharp in this modern era. So we've got some fun stuff today. As usual, I want to offer a hearty thanks to Nina for her writing assistance. We've got some cool takes, some things I would have missed. Some historical anecdotes, as usual, wouldn't be History of Westeros podcast without the extra dose of historical anecdotes and connections. Latest article on Nina's blog, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com, that's one L, of course, is on Kyle the Cat and Glendon Ball, right on topic here. Both of them arrive at the tournament with a goal for their career in mind. And both knights face the choice of how much they're willing to sacrifice personally to get those places that they desire. So that's cool. Good topic to consider amongst many here that the Mystery Knight provides us with. You can join the discussions offline for this series and for all of our other discussions on A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, and a variety of other topics, including things outside of the fandom. That includes Discord, Slack, Facebook, Twitter, email, and, well, really everywhere. We're almost on every site there is. I'm not on TikTok. You can't send us a letter. <laughs> you <can't>, <laughs> yeah, you can't send us a letter. I guess you could send us a letter, but we don't exactly publish our address. If you send us a letter, we'll be impressed. It is possible. We do have an address. <laughs> we aren't living in a void, an addressless void. Yet. That is our goal, though. We want to move to an addressless void. Just don't move to addressless void. Yeah, right. <laughs> the problem is <laughs> bandwidth. You really can't get good internet in the, in the void. Thanks to our patrons for keeping the lights on, keeping us functional over here. We would not be able to do this without y'all. This is our, well, bread and butter, we'll say. There's lots of good euphemisms for this, but <laughs> this, is, this is great. We're so thankful to be here and doing this. Let's get to it. If you want to support us on Patreon.com, well, there that's where we're at. But let's get to the material. I want to say, Aziz, yeah. I appreciate the recruitment theme you picked up on here. Recruitment theme, yeah, right. This is a good mm -hmm. one. Yeah, it's kind of a sub-theme that's pretty prominent in the story, but it's particularly prominent today. I think this is sort of like the... I guess it's the pre-climax, pre you can call it. The the stuff that happens right before the the ending. 
You know, I think Dunk got confirmation about 18 times, actually. <laughs> I guess what I mean is from the man himself. Yeah, Damon admit cops to it himself. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, there's so many. That's, uh, yeah, that's a, a good thing. Like he says, Damon, at one point. Yeah. Still has a piece of the other. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, Nina's even wrote a point about how uh, how this is a, an ongoing theme of people just trying, especially Maynard, just trying to get him to see it and just progressively getting more and more blunt about it. <laughs> and that it's just, <laughs> that it's just too late. To be fair, I'm not sure at what point I pieced it together. I don't think I fully had it till the 17th of 18 clues. <laughs> <laughs> you might have figured it out sooner if you lived in this world, but yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Maybe not. Maybe not. So let's talk about Squires. That's the first spot here. Dunk gets back to their tent, which, by the way, is a little bit of an upgrade. I wonder if there's any hidden symbolism here. I'm guessing not because George didn't really write about it. He didn't add any sort of poetic meaning to it. But the the idea that Dunk is no longer looking up at the stars every night. I mean, he still could look at the stars, but th there's a tent in the way now. So eh, <laughs> that, that could have been something he chose to write about. Maybe he will later because surely Duncan Egg will have a little bit more cash on hand, you know, going forward. They're not going to always be on the edge of poverty, I think. Maybe not. Maybe they'll just always be broke and they'll never have a decent tent. <laughs> At some point, the tent could become a burden too. I think right now they have three horses, but if they didn't, they might not be able to carry that yeah, tent along. That's a you good know? point. That's a good point. You got to keep a small tent. You got to keep a small tent. Mm -hmm. our, our friend... A small tent for Dunk? Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that wouldn't, that wouldn't <laughs> well, this work. Way, I, I guess he can be covered, but still look at the stars because his head will stick out. <laughs> <laughs> we have a friend uh, named Joe who's going on a big walk, the big, long Appalachian Trail walk. And he, he, there's a lot of preparation you have to do for that. And it's like every little ounce you're carrying is, is crucial. So you map it out like in a spreadsheet. And he said he's got like a tent that weighs like nine or 10 ounces or something wild like that. Like, geez, yeah. that, so that's what Dunk <laughs> needs. But that would probably cost uh, about half the price of a dragon egg in this. Uh, yeah, that's probably modern technology that he couldn't get if he wanted to. <laughs> no like way. Yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> totally, totally. Just some sort of strange modern tent fabric the, whose name I don't know. Some <laughs> long word that ends in "een" like neprozeprakine or yeah, that's it. That's I, that's it. I, Dragonine. Dragonine. Valerian. Valerian <laughs> <laughs> steel tents. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he sees that uh, Egg is already back at the tent. He's about to talk about what he just overheard. He's about to be like, hey, I overheard these dudes talking about like some stuff that sounded conspiratorial because he overheard, the, you know, I'm referring to the eavesdropping scene, of course. But he's, he's also drunk, though, and sees Egg's busted lip, and that just distracts him from the stuff he overheard, and then this becomes the topic of conversation instead. And then by the next day, Dunk is sort of forgotten, not completely forgotten, but he's, he's so confused about what he overheard because he was drunk and then he's hungover. He, it hardly even comes up. It doesn't even end up mattering because it comes up elsewhere. Like you said, there's a bajillion different clues towards all that. But this is, uh, in the meantime, this is what becomes his concern that Egg was in a fight. And Sean, this is kind of interesting. He's, it's sort of a, re, uh, a refrain. It's the same sort of thing that Egg is getting upset about. People talking about his family, people talking about his father in particular. And that, that really bothers him. 
Yeah, one one thing was interesting is that uh, at one point, Dunk chastising Egg. You know, Egg's trying to explain, justify why I got in this fight. And Dunk's like, you think Prince Makar needs a little boy to defend him? <laughs> How many times has Dunk needed Egg to defend him? How many times has <laughs> Dunk says, no, to be fair, it's not purely the little boy. It's, you know, his boot coming out, but... uh his identity, you know, which is another strong thing here. But, but hey, his identity as a prince could still defend his dad. Now, Sir Dunk's still right. This isn't the time or place for, for him to, like, reveal his identity to defend his dad's honor to some random squires, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's still humorous, I thought. It is, uh, yeah. And a, another bit of irony in, in Dunk's mind, when he's contemplating, you know, Egg's actions here, he thinks, you know the truth. Let that be enough. You know, yeah, and that's that's generally is pretty good advice. I I, I like that. I, you know, many times I appreciate Dunk's wisdom. Yeah, this uh, is where he, he shines, questions. It. I think this is where he yeah. shines. Yeah, but it is also ironic, given what seems to be Dunk's identity as not a true knight. He, what does it mean to for him to know the truth and let that be enough? You know, it's weird to think about how he processes yeah. in his own mind that's a good point. the truth of his identity if it's enough for him to have competed in these tournaments and be recognized as a knight, even if he hasn't really been dubbed officially. That's a good point. Will that matter yeah. one day? You know? That, it might. Yeah, that's a great that's a great take. I like that a lot. I hadn't considered that as he's telling him the you know the truth. Well you know the truth too. And it's yeah, that's yeah. true. Will that guilt get to him, you know, in the same way the egg eventually kind of burst out, my dad's not sulking, you know, yeah. eventually Dunk is gonna be like uh I'm thinking of the moment when uh, in the office when they're cracking down on PR and Michael's, oh, well, corporate says I can't tell any more jokes. And Jim is <laughs> like, oh man, you were always so good. <laughs> and Michael's like, you left me satisfied. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> I'm not really night. Dick's going to come out with it. <laughs> yeah. This is how Egg is with the, you're right. This is Egg when the squires are talking about his dad. He's like, I can't, except he's not, it's not, a, <laughs> yeah. he's, instead of a joke, he's holding back. It's a, it's a punch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's not sulking. Yeah, he's not sulking. I'll punch you. Yeah, I'll show you sulking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's a good catch there, Sean. And it's also funny too, because yeah, while he doesn't need a boy to defend him, he needs his advice pretty badly. <laughs> Egg's advice has been pretty clutch several times, though. Dunk doesn't always take it. Like here, he didn't. He doesn't take his advice not to enter the joust, and that really, <laughs> well, it ended yeah, up working out. Yeah. But it should have. It was Egg was one hundred percent correct. As for the you know the truth it's thing, still- I was going to say he's like, <laughs> it's like I know the false. Let that be enough. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else, let, everyone else knows the lie. Let's leave it there. <laughs> what were you going to say? You know, it still might have worked out, even if he didn't join a tournament. He still could have gone to the tournament. Yeah been a witness to these things happening. Egg still might have gotten some trouble. You know, who knows how the butterfly effect would have played out. But uh, Maynard Plum probably still would have been suspicious about Dunk's presence, even if he didn't enter the list. Yeah, so. pretty sure that uh, he didn't need to have his head almost taken off or all that other stuff to happen. But it probably yeah. did help a little bit to see that Maynard probably figures it out anyway. But having seeing that someone paid to have him kill, killed 
was probably a good thing, you know, in terms of sealing the deal there. Like, okay, someone just paid to kill that guy. Cause he, you know, like he probably figured out the snail didn't do that by accident. You know, that, that, that yeah. was like a well-placed blow. He's watched the snail joust a few times. Like this guy's knows his business. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's definitely something that could catch the eye. But as we said, yeah, there's so many other pieces of evidence. That one wasn't exactly crucial. It was just part of the whole pastiche of, of evidence, I suppose. You know, it's kind of interesting too, squires, just in general, hedge knights having squires isn't exactly typical, right? Like you wouldn't expect it to be typical. You give that little thought, like hedge knights are poor, squires require equipment too. If you can squire for someone, generally you might have a better opportunity squiring for someone with a little more money, you know, someone's a little higher up on the social ladder. Uh, there's usually those kind of options. It's like interning. Like if you're going to intern in, with some company for your career, you generally intern with the best company you can find. Now, Dunk is is great. I'm not saying he's not, obviously. But from the outside, a lot of people would look at him and be like, well, this is not a great opportunity. Obviously, Maycar was sold on it because he's a little different. And we would agree with that reasoning. But you know, in this world, culturally speaking, it looks like he's sort of taking an internship, inter, internship, internship at a, <laughs> a kind of a low level company, you know, one that doesn't ha- offer great opportunities for advancement. We know there's that, always exceptions yeah. and uh, variations, right? You might intern for a smaller company because your uncle works there or, you know, it's up the street from you or something like that. So. Yeah, that's true. And he, and Dunk, and obviously Egg isn't in this for he doesn't need the advancement, right? He's the, he's a freaking royal. Yeah, like yeah. that part's already, that road's already paved. The red carpet's already rolled out for him. He's trying to learn the kinds, of, in, in a way he's, it, it is the inverse. Like you can't learn the things that he's been born with, but almost in his position, it's really hard to learn the things he's learning from Dunk born. It's, it's, it's sort of like a inverse uh, birth station thing. Like he's so far above these, these things that it's hard for him to learn them, but um, he's, he wants to, and that says a lot about yeah. his character. It's a unique opportunity. It makes him a unique leader yeah. as he grows, you know. And meanwhile, the Fiddler, um, yet more evidence, as if there isn't just unending evidence that he's got lots of money. He, when he's getting ready for his like third or fourth match, he's got three squires helping him get dressed. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> One squire's already like, hmm. And they're helping him wear his, you know, golden armor and his <laughs> putting on all his like, oh, make sure all 15 of my black diamonds are in a arrayed properly. You know? <laughs> Jeez, man. Um, but it is kind of neat too. Nina writes a, a good take here about Egg uh, defending his father. It's neat too because so many of these characters here don't have fathers. Like Dunk doesn't know who his dad is. Bloodraven's dad was awful. Um, <laughs> so many of these characters have bad dads or no dads. Dunk's father figure was Arlen. So that's sort of something. But fathers and their sons or father figures, a big theme here. And this is one of the few examples of someone standing up for their father rather than the other way around. Usually, you know, it's the dads that have to stand up for their sons or, or for their other, or for their daughters or mothers standing up for their kids, et cetera. It's usually how that goes, right? You know, the parents are usually more capable. The kids are younger and don't have as much uh, ability to do such things until they get to a certain age. So that's kind of neat. It's a sort of an inversion of that, or at least it pairs with the theme nicely. Besides Dunk being concerned about Egg getting into fights, I don't think he's terribly worried about injury, right? He's worried about identity, right? It's Egg says, I hit him good. <laughs> so whoever he hit good, which would be 
Sir Mallor's squire. Now, we don't know who Sir Mallor is. We do know that the other squire was Sir Adam. And that's one of the frays. So, I mean, follow this chain here. Sir Mallor gets a punch in the face, too. So he's got a mark. So his knight is going to be like, well, who punched you? Just like Dunk is asking Egg, who punched you? And, well, that might ask question. That might raise questions, right? Like, well, why is this squire mad about someone talking about Makar? Like, this is a tournament full of Blackfire loyalists. People should hate Makar, right? They, this is the gut com- enemy commander. This was the anvil, right, for on the red grass mm-hmm. field a big, powerful commander, a guy they're all going to be worried about if it comes to war. So, like, that probably won't get back to this night, but it might, right? And that's the kind of thing, exactly what Dunk's worried about. Like, don't raise these questions. Don't, don't let give people reason to ask questions. That may have been a, a, at least a spark of what got Egg abducted. Yeah, right? that's He true. brought attention to himself there. It might have raised some questions. People already recognizing Dunk, at least physically, we, we don't need to see the details of all that, how all that happened in the background, but you can see how those pieces would come together. Absolutely. And uh, once again, these guys, it's hard for them to sort of fade into the crowd, right? You've got the huge dude and the bald kid. Like, they just can't hide. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> which squire was it? And like, I don't remember what he looks like. No, it was the bald kid. I mean, it's, uh, it's the easiest. Yeah, they might be... <laughs> They might be two of the most recognizable people there. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, yeah. Many people there are maybe trying to keep their identities hidden, but they're maybe the most naive about the idea of actually being able to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this time, it's a callback to the beginning of the story, uh, the heraldry. At the beginning, it's almost like, almost rude, the way Egg is like, mocking Dunk for mixing up the phrase and the peak sigils, which, to be fair, they are pretty different. They just have one small thing in common. The colors are really different. But anyway, (laughs) he's still kind of rude about it. Like, of course, that's the, you know, because he's was taught all these things. He knows the sigils quite well. So it's kind of like holding it over Dunk that he was, didn't have that education. And Dunk, you know, fires back at him. Like, you sound like a proper princeling, you know, (laughs) reminding him of his bias there. He's like, oh yeah, I was taught all that. You weren't. Okay. I will try not to make too much fun of you then. But here, he's, it's, it's a lot more efficient, a lot more to the point. He's using his knowledge to delve farther into the mysteries that are surrounding them here. As the Sunderland sigil, that's a big note here. Um, the Sunderlands are from the Three Sisters. That's really far away. And they're an island nation that is poor, not particularly notable for things like jousting and all that. So come back to that in a minute. But this is nicely set up by some past examples that we've seen. One thing Dunk suggests is Sunderland's, they must be kin to the bride or something for them to have come that far because he doesn't, he's not thinking conspiratorially here. And Egg's like, nope, that's not the case either. And meanwhile, you've got people like the Brackens and the Tullys who are close (laughs) and prominent, yet they didn't come. Yet you have this sort of obscure house coming from far away, traveling a long way to get there. And, well, what's that all about? Now, it's a similar situation back in Harrenhal. She sees Harry and Karstark, a a prisoner there. Harry and Karstark's the heir to Carhold. Even after Alice Karstark has married the Magnar of Then up there, Technically, her brother's still there. It's just that it's kind of believed that he might not make it back. He might be dead. From their perspective, he may already be dead. But Arya didn't 
pay a lot of attention to sigils like Sansa did. <laughs> so she doesn't rec- she is not able to tell who he is. She describes the sigil so the reader can know, but she doesn't recognize that it's another Northman. And if she had, that might have affected her behavior. She might have like tried to talk to him like, oh, that's another Northman or something. But she didn't even like, I don't know who that is. I don't recognize that sigil. It does actually matter, like knowing who, where someone's from, even if it's just knowing what region they come from can, can make a pretty big difference. Knowledge is power. Right on. A, an example of it. Now let's, let's talk about a different parallel sticking with the Starks. Jon Snow, he's a really good example of someone who couldn't keep quiet, couldn't keep it to himself when people were talking bad about his father, especially Alistair Thorne, right? That's really similar here because it's Makar's egg's father. Jon isn't technically Ned's son, but in terms of what people think, what he thinks, it's his, his father, certainly his father figure. So they're defending their father's honor. Someone is calling their father a kinslayer or a traitor or both. Very similar types of like insults or accusations of treason against the royal family. And this parallel is really enriched by Alistair Thorne's backstory. Remember, do you remember, Sean, why Alistair Thorne is on the wall? Do you, do you recall what his origin story in that regard is? You know, I don't quite. Was he mixed up in some sort of revolt? Was he part of the Greyjoys or something? No, he was. Uh, he's. Uh, oh, he was on the wrong side of Robert's Rebellion. Just straightforward as that. Yeah, okay. he was on. Aer- he took Aerys's side. The Thorns were loyalists. So when he was on the losing side, he ended up on the wall. So that's part of why he hates Ned Stark because Ned Stark was a rebel leader, right? That's he's one of the reasons that he's on the wall now, mm-hmm. and that's you know his son. So he's taking out his frustration on Ned Stark's the traitor's bastard, you know, as he said. So that's a really big connection because that's part of why some of these squires hate Makar and the the Targaryens because they're on the losing side of the Blackfire Rebellion that certainly their houses all suffered for being on the losing side of the rebellion. Loss of wealth, loss of heads, (laughs) whatever. Um, And maybe more than they would have during Robert's Rebellion too. Yeah. In fact, this is like a stretch back, but I seem to remember at one point we were dancing around the topic. We never quite punched the point of the difference between how Robert treated traitors after the rebellion, how, how different it was. That's true. It, it, Robert was, you know, for all his faults, that was one, I think, wise thing he did was not be particularly retributive yeah. uh, against all the traitors. You yeah. Know? And he's a rebel himself. Like, technically, they were the over usurpers, whereas the Blackfires were the rebels, but they lost. So it's kind of like that part's reversed, where the rebels won in Robert's case. So it's a bit harder to call. I mean, you can still call people who weren't on their side traitors, but it's a, a little harder of an argument to make, in my opinion. But still, you're still right. It doesn't change your point that Robert also handled it. Yeah, it does easy. make it easier for Robert, too, when he was the, not only when he was the, the rebel, but also it's not like he had it out for everyone that supported Targaryen. Just the Targaryens. Se. Yeah, he really did right, have right. it out for he them, just, but not the rest. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but sometimes I scratch my head and think about was supporting the Targaryens. I feel like there was way more support for Robert than for Ares, but maybe I'm just unaware of how many, especially of the troops close to Ares, would have been in support of him. But but like the Lannisters were neutral at best. Yeah, right. The Lannisters only the took Starks. the side right at the end. Yep. Yep. The Veil, I think, was kind of neutral. Well, the Dorn the, the was, Reach was on were loyalists, and the Reach is huge. So that's one huge yeah. and wealthy. So yeah. yeah. And there were and Dorn was mostly on the Targaryen side that they were a little reluctant, but that's their family. That's the Ilya Martell. I mean, the Martells were married in. So so they had that going for them as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was it was more 
the rebels did have more of the kingdoms, which doesn't necessarily mean they had more troops, but you're right. In terms of just things you can name, there's more names uh, on the rebel side. You also have Ares II and Ares I here, although the first Blackfire Rebellion, Ares wasn't king yet, but still that's kind of a fun little uh, connection. I was partly sparked to think about it when thinking about the what-if scenarios that Eustace was going through. Certain things that happened in Robert's Rebellion, if they hadn't gone quite right, I think Robert's Rebellion was just going to end up winning anyway. You yeah, know, I, yeah. I'm not sure, but uh, especially given some certain hindsight things, like once it started to tip a little, Tywin was going to jump in on that side. Yeah, so. that's true. That's very true. He just wanted, and it seemed like that was the way it was going to go for so many reasons. Now, if we stay on topic with Jon Snow, there's another great connection leading us to another subtopic here. Stay on topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Can we? Can we? Now, Jon stays, uh, of course, travels with Corrin Halfhand and his band, one of whom is the elite archer Squire Dalbridge. Dalbridge was squire to King Jaehaerys II. That's Egg's second son. So, yeah, that's cool, huh? So, mm. so Squire Dalbridge, mm. of course, gives his life to buy the rest of the squad more time. With that and his incredible skill with the bow, it's pretty clear that this is a good example of, of someone who was never a knight, but not due to lack of ability, right? This guy's brave. He you know, gives his life to save his friends just without question. And obviously, like I said, his, his skill with the bow is almost unmatched. And let alone the fact he chose to be a king's squire. That's not normal either, right? You got to be special for that. Normally, that's a, a factor of being highborn. Like it's the you see the squires from the, for the king be from the top families. This guy's not. We don't know what family he's even from, which implies even more ability because it wasn't, you know, his rank, his family's rank that got him there. But we don't even know what family he's a part of. If, if, if it was a big name, we would probably know it. Like, if this guy was a do Lannister, know, we would know it, you know? Do we know about how old he was? Was he like 16 or 36? He would have or? had to be pretty young because we don't know for sure. No, he would have had to be in at least eight because that's, that's as young as a squire could be. But he could have been an older squire, which is part of what we're, what we're segueing to, uh, the age of a squire and the fact that squire, sometimes that's their career. Just because you're a squire doesn't mean you're young. They can start that young, but that doesn't always mean you... Not all squires stay that way. So what I'm wondering too is about this guy, Squire Dalbridge. Maybe he won like an archery contest to distinguish himself like Angai did at the hands tournament. But he took the black probably when his king died. Uh, Jaehaerys didn't last very long. He died in his late 30s. My guess is that Dalbridge was... Like a lot of these guys, he wanted to be a Kingsguard. He's a squire to the king as a, at a young age. Probably, like I said, it wasn't because of family connections likely, so he probably really wanted this. But he never even became a knight, let alone Kingsguard. So that's a really interesting thing. Now here's a, a quote from George R. Martin about squires to sort of illuminate what we're talking about here, about how they can really take, we shouldn't just think about them as young men. We tend to think of squires as teenage boys, knights in training. That is only part of the truth. Historically, there were many men who spent their entire lives as squires and never became knights. It was quite common to have 30, 40-year-old squires, even some in their 50s. Such men perhaps did not have the wealth to become knights. Knights had to pay for their own equipment or perhaps did not have the inclination. They were the medieval counterparts of the career army sergeant who has no desire to be promoted to lieutenant, let alone general. Right, so that you having been in the military might uh, have a little extra insight here. I do, and it's, I don't want to take away from Martin's point, but it's a little, it's slightly off base. I don't know quite how to say it, but like a career army sergeant is a highly trained, college-educated leader of 
hundreds, maybe thousands of men. Maybe like a buck sergeant who just got promoted might only be in charge of you know five or ten. Or, Squire's or, not in charge of anybody, but right. equipment. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's not the best analogy because interesting. By the way, the word sergeant mm-hmm. comes from the word servant, mm-hmm. and originally sergeants were servants. They were like assistants to officers, and officers basically were wealthy. Right. Yeah. You, you would have a wealthy person bought horses and swords. So now I'm a leader where they would have, you know, the, the soldiers that they were leaders of would have years of experience fighting with their sword or maybe not. Maybe they'd just be farmers. You know, you could see a, a range. But in a modern army, what happens is an 18 year old will say two different 18 year olds. One joins the army or private. And they go through basic and they get trained with radios and Humvees and M16s. And after four years, they're a sergeant. Whereas another 18-year-old goes to college and spends four years studying history and management and then gets commissioned as a lieutenant. Mm. The lieutenant technically is going to be put in charge of a platoon and he'll be higher ranked than the sergeant. But that sergeant knows more than that lieutenant. Does that make sense? Uh, He's been in the unit for four years or in the army. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so sergeants are sort of like this parallel leadership chain along with officers. And being a career sergeant isn't someone who's like avoiding the responsibility or leadership of an officer. Does that make sense? It's just another route, you know? It's kind of like saying he wanted to be a career lawyer instead of a judge. It's just a different thing, you know? I don't know. I don't know if that's the best analogy I think that works pretty well. Yeah, I think you you think you delineated that pretty well. Uh, That does, that certainly explain, uh, helps me understand it better. And you could see squires might go similarly, right? Like, especially like the noble squires, as young boys, they squire some night just so they can get some training and have some mm. idea what they're doing as a knight yeah. so they don't look like fools. Some of them may or may not actually do. They Some may become knights anyway and really not know anything about fighting, but just because they're rich or their dad wanted it or whatever, right? Yeah. Whereas some squires who maybe if they're not necessarily related to wealth or land or anything like that, after a squire for 10 or 20 years, they might be very, very proficient and respected at their job. That's true. But they just aren't rich, so they can't be a knight or they don't have royal blood or whatever. Another similar parallel, Navy SEALs, they're not officers, they're sergeants. Mm. You know, they, they're the most trained expert fighters and soldiers in the military. Usually not officers or more leaders. Yeah, they're... they're Soldier, you know, this enlisted men are more fighting. But among the enlisted men, there's still leaders among them too. So right, okay, okay, cool. That's that's very helpful. Yeah. Another example right here in the story, we have the man that taught Glendon his arms training. It wasn't a knight. He remember he was knighted by some guy Morgan Dunstable in exchange for favors from the brothel women there. But the guy who actually taught Glendon how to fight was a squire, so he couldn't knight him. But he uh, otherwise he would have. So clearly, this dude that taught Glendon knew his business. Uh, if Glendon's skill is any evidence of it, which I think it is. Like he's not all talent, right? He's certainly someone taught him some things and he's quite good at it. So that just goes to show like what you're saying, like had some more well-educated guy taught Glendon, well, he might've learned a more, a wider variety of things, but he might not have taught him jousting as well or horsemanship. Someone that's just like constantly around horses and all that, that might've gotten a better education for someone that's just doing it every day. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Now, when Egg does say, because they talk about the Sunderlands and they still get back to the topic about what Dunk overheard in an oblique manner, he says, Egg says, this is a traitor's tourney, sir. And in the first of what are many quotes that we're going to read today in a voice that isn't 
the intended voice written by George R. R. Martin. I'm going to say that this dunk, Dunk's response is meant to sound a bit like Monty Python. Like, what? All of them? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but pretty much, yeah, almost all of them. One of the things about it, too, is this is one of the things that really gets me. Is these, this, Do these people not know how much of a target they are? Like, if I'm Bloodraven, if Gorman Peak travels anywhere, I want to know about it. <laughs> like, if he's, whatever he's doing, I want to know about it. So if he's traveling to this tournament, that alone, like, I don't care who else is there, that alone is like, raises the red flags or the black flags, whichever metaphor works here. <laughs> But then you have even more, like the Sunderlands. This is in a way, you know, in a, in a way, this is even more outlandish, them traveling there. And just even more, like, there's only one reason they could be there. <laughs> it's like, because you think about where they had to go. They're in the Three Sisters. Think about this. Nina, this is a good catch by Nina. When we see the Sunderlands in the Elaine chapter in The Winds of Winter, because there's a tournament happening there. So it's a good, pr- pretty good parallel, pretty good use, uh, example to compare. Miranda Royce is like, I can't believe they showed up. <laughs> She's surprised they showed up and they're way closer to that tournament. And it's not a traitor's tournament, right? It's just a tournament for the wing knights or what have you. Uh, I mean, it may become a traitor's thing, but it isn't so obviously that on the outside. <laughs> it's everyone in the veil is there. That's just really funny that uh, it's wild that they showed up there. She's questioning that they showed up there because they're poor. They're not that into jousting. <laughs> so it's they probably had to sail from all the way to Gull Town or to Maidenpool or maybe King's Landing and then travel overland all this way around the God's Eye. It's like, yeah. The first time reading this, I was a little, you know, obviously there's so much, this is so thick of a story and a mystery that I hadn't pieced it all together yet. But I was like, how does Blood Raven have an army all ready to go already? You know, it's, yeah. it's like coming together at the end. Like, I don't know. I kind of like uh, I couldn't quite swallow that at first. Uh, but then the more we read, the more we realize how far ahead of this blood was. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and to that end, I want to point out the value of intelligence. I was in intelligence when I was in the army. And think about all these clues here that make it seem so obvious and allow Blood Raven to get ahead of it. But if he didn't have intelligence, if he wasn't making an effort, if he didn't have a thousand eyes in one, he wouldn't have known. He wouldn't right. have known the Sunderlands were there. He wouldn't know what Peak was doing. And so think how many lives were saved by Blood Raven just being aware ahead of time, mm-hmm. you know, having the intelligence of what was going down here and being ready for it. So. Good point. Yeah, I mean, like, those clues would have been there, but he wouldn't have been able to pick up on them. He wouldn't be aware of them. The, the clues wouldn't have made it to his eyes or ears to th- consider. And like, oh, yeah. yeah. It's way more valuable to know where to deploy 100 men than to have 400 men. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. 400 men off in some castle where there's no battle is nowhere near as valuable as 100 men at the castle where the battle is. <laughs> so the Sunderlands are here to rise for Damon like everybody else, but it's interesting to see just how bought in they are because like most of these other houses are probably like, yeah, we'll see how it goes. You know, we'll, we'll join you if it goes well, including people who are a lot closer uh, geographically. So these guys spend a lot of money to come lose badly because <laughs> they obviously aren't coming for the joust. They're not coming for the egg. Because they they know already that they're not getting the egg, and Davos shows up there. Remember uh, Dance with Dragons? It's remarked how poor they are comparatively because of the same thing. Because they they can't smuggle anymore. That was their main source of income. So they're fish lords now. Another way that they're basically fish lords is that they have webbed fingers and mysterious connections to the deep ones. So they might literally be fish lords. But uh, Dunk says they eat fish on the Three Sisters, don't they? And well, yeah, they they do. Um, like 
pretty much anyone on an island. They do eat fish. <laughs> uh, that's like when he says, "Did I was I unhorsed?" <laughs> after he did, <laughs> he, after like, he wakes does up, egg and, not eat fish. Yeah. <laughs> and then to to deepen this whole little mini scenario, this is what Lord Burl says of Lord Sunderland uh, to Davos. I used to curse the gods who gave me only daughters until I heard Tristan bemoaning the cost of destriers. You'd be surprised to know how many fish it takes to buy a decent suit of plate mail. I don't know that I would be surprised. It's going to be some huge (laughs) amount. (laughs) That's another reason that this really stands out. Okay, so they're poor. It takes a lot of fish to buy a decent suit of plate and mail. And what happens when you lose a joust? What's that? Or one very or one large. Very large yeah. <laughs> so you go there, you travel all that way, you lose a joust, and then you lose your plate mail and your sword and your horse. <laughs> so that is just so many fish. But as we also know, what happens when you're a repeat offender, rebel, you get your punishment is really severe. So this long trip is truly a disaster, maybe more disastrous for anyone except Damon himself, who traveled even farther <laughs> for an even bigger failure. But these guys lost a lot of fish. Poor went out for the Sunderlands and all their lost fish income if they weren't like executed or something, which is entirely possible as well. So, yeah, there you go. The Sunderlands, that's what we have to say about them. Let's talk about the, the Gallows Knight, Dunk's Sigil, and what that can tell us and other discussion topics that emerge from it. The actual description is a hanged man swinging grim and gray beneath a gallows tree. Speaking of people getting executed, like maybe the Mm. Sunderlands or other people, uh, and his presence is is helping lead to more executions, I suppose. But as we said, eh, probably most of them would have happened anyway. Now, this is something I find interesting about the whole life of a hedge knight. Like, he's got this shield simply because he couldn't afford to have it painted yet. He hasn't had time to have it painted yet. It's purely a logistics thing. Like, I wonder how often this happens. How often does a hedge knight just not have their sigil handy because they can't afford to carry around three or four spare shields? Like, most knights have one extra shield or maybe more. Like, lords are going to have, like, a bunch of extra shields. They're never going to run out of stuff that has their sigil on it, right? It's just on everything. It's like Coca-Cola's not going to run out of stuff that's branded with their <laughs> logo on it, <laughs> right? I but wonder- these guys... Oh, I wonder how many hedge knights dabble in painting. So that that would be a good, useful skill to have. Yeah. Their shield. Like sewing. Or yeah, for yeah. a squire. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah, that's a good point. For a squire, yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. So like learning a variety of skills, you could. there's another use for that here, having <laughs> painting skills. That's Paint's expensive. It's not like, you know, we can't think of it like modern times where paint's relatively cheap. Yeah, colors and paints are not so, are not so cheap, let alone the skill. I mean, there could also be carvings. That's true. Carvings, yeah. I guess that's the value of having a, a, a simple sigil. Dunk sigil, not simple. <laughs> you got to paint yeah. the star and the tree. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He, he, that's one, one choice he made that makes it a little more difficult. It's not just like a, I don't know, like a fireball. That, that's probably a little easier. <laughs> so I guess one thing we could say about this is while he's choosing to be a mystery, he's kind of leaning into it. He's like, yeah, I may as well be a mystery knight. I don't have my sigil. You know, he might not have chosen to be a mystery knight if he had his regular shield, a copy of it. So I wonder if like, yeah, like other hedge knights just lean into this like, well, I don't have my sigils. So uh, 
let's be a mystery night. People like that. So uh, let's do it. You know, <laughs> that's Damon just forgot his his shield with the sigil on it. So I guess I'll be the fiddler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I accidentally I grabbed the wrong shield. I meant to grab the black dragon and I accidentally grabbed the the fiddle. So, you know, it's good enough. Just run with yeah, it. Just run with it. <laughs> the black fiddle rebellion. You know, <laughs> you didn't forget the sword, did you? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. Here, I would say, uh, he, he wakes up. This hangover he has is nothing compared to the Lance to the Face hangover he's going to have. It's like a warm-up for a bigger hangover. Uh, Dunk takes a You think a your head of, hurts now. Yeah. Dunk takes a beating <laughs> in, this, in this story. And then he's like, he has a hangover. Then he gets slammed in the head. Then he gets stabbed in the arm and loses a bunch of blood. Then he fights Black Tom. <laughs> Like, geez. <laughs> but hey, he comes out of it. He's dunk. He's good. He would have 18 constitution if he was a D&D character. That's true. And probably the 18 strengths too. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever max hit points. And yeah. His wisdom wouldn't be super high. Or no, his wisdom would be kind of high. His intelligence would be low. Which one, which one would be high? Which one would be low? You know, I don't think they would be super low or high, right? Yeah. They'd probably 12 or 13. You know what I mean? I think yeah. He yeah. would think he has eight, right? But I think he would have a, he would be a good character. He would be. Yeah. He got some lucky rolls. Pretty high charisma, too. <laughs> like, people like him. Like, the women love yeah, him, and yeah. Egg loves him. Like, yeah, people charisma, like him. dexterity. He hits on all bases. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe dexterity might be also kind of medium. Yeah, he would. Not low, right? He's quick. He is quicker than size. he seems. He's pointed out several times. Yeah, because yeah. he's got those the scrapping skills. Yeah, you're right. This is where the wisdom, you would say, is a strike against his wisdom anyway, when he's over-focused on, like, what he could win. He's like, oh, I got to do is win once and I'm going to win a suit of armor and a new horse. Like, you really should think about the opposite though and how unlikely you are to win, (laughs) right? (laughs) He's like... Yeah, (laughs) to be fair, it's a very common wisdom mistake or whatever. Just people in general often think way more about how good or bad something is if it happens without thinking of it relative to the likelihood of it happening. And some of this is even like, I don't know, natural or understandable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the fears that people have of, you know, being eaten by a shark or something like that. So they don't want to go swimming or, but really you're way more likely to get in a car accident, but you still drive your car around. So yeah. there's not only like how good or bad it is if it happens, the likelihood of it happening, but also the the value you, you get from doing or not doing some task. And Dunk's not really thinking about any of that. He's not mm-hmm. thinking about how bad it is if he loses his horse and his armor. He's not thinking about how much more experience these other knights have or how poorly he did at the last <laughs> jousting or, uh, wait, no, he never actually got the joust last time. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did. He jousted in, the, in, the trial in for real. Yeah, he didn't do a tournament yeah. joust. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a really good take. Well, well point there, Sean. He, he, uh, he's thinking also culturally, it's just encouraged. Like, Men are supposed to be warriors in this society, which means you take chances, means you you put yourself out there. You don't sit there, sitting there and waiting for your moment isn't uh, isn't manly in this society. So that's, I think, part of it too is Dunk is, you're encouraged to think about the rewards and not what could go wrong. It's not necessarily great for morale. Uh, in this case, it would have been a good time to, to think think things through. But yeah, a lot, there's like, like a lot of, lot of men in this society are sort of given the soldier's attitude, like, face what comes, don't think about it too much, you know? <laughs> if you think about it too much, it's just going to make you more scared. Egg, of course, not naive at all about this anyway. Other things, sure, but <laughs> he is 100% like set, dunk, you're making a mistake, but he just can't argue him out of it. 
is a good semi-jokey uh, line that segues us into another subtopic here. Quote, It's not as if I faced the laughing storm. Is there some knight here like to give me trouble? Almost all of them, sir. I owe you a clout <laughs> in the ear for that. Sarah Uther is 10 years my senior and half my size. So perfect example, right? This is very naive. Uther is going to laugh like a, a few paragraphs later at the notion that size matters at all. He's like, he's half my size. I'm like, yeah, well, dude, size is irrelevant. It's one of those times where size does not matter. <laughs> uh, length does, though. <laughs> All the euphemisms coming out here. <laughs> not to mention age doesn't really matter much either. In fact, age might help. Like, Uthor's age might be an advantage because of experience, right? He's had more experience jousting. He's, his, yeah. his aim with his lance is elite. And it's like a sliding scale of all these factors of size and experience yeah. and skill and everything. Like, you know, if if you're at some point, like if you're in a wrestling match, if one person's 200 pounds, one person's 100 pounds, it doesn't matter how good that 100 pound wrestler is. They just can't manage someone twice their size. Yeah. But 140, 160, you know, and same thing with the age, like most of, you know, the best marathon runners, the best football players, they're 30 years old. Not 20 years old. Yeah. You know, even if the 20 year old might be stronger, you know, or in, in some facets, the experience, how to pace yourself, the skills that you learn along the way, they start to outweigh. But once you get to be 50, there aren't many 50 year old marathon runners. There's no 50 year old football players. Yeah, you know? it starts to decline. You're right. No matter how experienced they are, they still need a certain amount of strength to keep up. Things that you can keep adding skill over the years. You're right. Like bodybuilders, another good example, because you just cannot add like 50 pounds of muscle when you're 20. It's that you add a few pounds yeah. a year until here you can, you keep going. So by the time you're 40, yeah. yeah, you're not as fast as you were when you're 40, when you're 20, but you can, if you keep adding muscle, you can have way more muscle at that age than when you were when you were younger. And you could probably take this analogy in other directions too, but like even if you could theoretically just suddenly add 50 pounds of muscle when you're 20, yeah. your tendons aren't strong enough to support it. Yeah, right, right, You right, need right. all these other aspects to go along with it. Like you can add the muscle quicker when you're in your 20s, but you just, the, the progress of continually adding and adding it, the, all that work adds up where you can't just jam that into a, a year or two. And the same thing is said, like we, we, we've heard this about uh, the real world for marksmen, for example, archers in the real world, like, the Persian Empire, famous for its archers, and it was said that the best archers were in their early 40s because they had 20 years of shooting a bow, and it was before their, like you said, before some of their physical skills just started to decline. Their body starts to go the other direction, but their skill set is just so built up. It's so honed, like the fluidity of their motion, the repetition, the expert level of having done something tens of thousands of times. It's, it's really neat. Uh, musicians too is another example of that yeah <laughs> something you practice and practice and practice and there's just there's no making up for that i saw iron maiden's drummer recently i, I mean I'm a little while ago now that i think nico about it, mcbrain yeah what a yeah. great name he has <laughs> he was barely moving he was like he was like talking to someone he was like drumming just, so just metal drumming yeah. And it's like his wrists were kind of flicking. He's like, so anyway, last week I went to the pub. And like, I was like, holy crap. He's just like exploding sound out effortlessly. It was amazing. And he's in he's like his 60s. Or, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Iron Maiden started in the late 70s. Yeah. <laughs> like they're, they're still impressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're still impressive. That's what happens when you're a very professional band that never does drugs. <laughs> they just kept on working. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty far off topic. But it's also a, a foreshadowing joke here, right? It's not as if I faced the laughing storm. Now, we we talked about that a little bit before, but let's review. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's joke shadowing. We need a word. Okay. Oh, yeah. We need a word for this. When, when it's foreshadowing, but it's a joke, 
joke shadowing is my take, but I, I think we can do better than that. Joke shadowing. Now, Sean, you had an idea, right? High five shadowing? High five. Instead Am, of I right? shadowing, Am I right? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Just to recap, we did talk about this briefly. Like I said, Dunk is going to win a trial by combat against the Laughing Storm much later, which are uh, under much tighter circumstances. This isn't a tournament. It's give up your rebellion because he rebels after a broken arranged marriage. This includes the incident where Olena, the Queen of Thorns, Claims to have ended her Targaryen betrothal, though she's probably lying because she was nine when this happened and her betrothed was an adult gay man. So most likely he broke it off. <laughs> uh, so she was probably just saving face, but you know, whatever. Uh, that didn't start the war. It was Duncan the Small, uh, the, the guy Duncan, um, or named after Duncan the Tall, Egg's first son, the one who leaves, uh, who rejects his inheritance as crown, uh, heir to the throne for Jenny of Oldstones with, you know, the one with the awesomely sad song. And of course, this is settled by Ormond Baratheon, who might have been the Laughing Storm's son. It's actually not clear if he was. He might have been like a nephew or something. Probably his son, though, marries Rael, which is Egg's daughter. And that, again, is the source of Robert, Stannis, and Renly's recent Targaryen blood. That's Ormond and Rael are their grandparents. So most of you probably knew that already, but it's important to recap that. Now, because the Blackfires are such a big part of this story, more so than the Baratheons are in their era that we're talking about, or especially in this era, it was the fifth Blackfire rebellion that saw the death of Lord Ormond, and he was slain by Maylis Blackfire, <laughs> leading the very Golden Company that will be performed within months of this short story. And that's all about 27 years later when Egg has been king for about six years. So it's a long journey from Hedge Knight in disguise as a mystery knight to Kingsguard champion of the Iron Throne. But all of it is contained in that quote pretty much or in the, the context of that quote and with the specific naming of the Laughing Storm. So that's pretty darn cool. Uh, George gets sometimes gets flack for not planning things out, but clearly he's planned a lot of things. I mean, that is a lot of detail across a lot of generations with a lot of characters. So, you know. I think if anything, he plans too many things out. That's, <laughs> yeah, well, I won't argue yeah. with that. <laughs> it's good for us, though, but you're right. You could yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's a whole lot of famous descendants and famous family. Now we switch gears to the snail who Dunk's about to face in the tournament, who he says, ha, I'm glad I'm facing him. <laughs> uh, as far as we know, the snail doesn't have any famous descendants. The snail was paid to kill him. So that's another irony here. He's like, I'm not worried about him. I'm not worried about the guy that was paid to kill me. <laughs> we learn later that it was Alan Cockshaw who, kills, who, was, who pays to kill him. And this is funny, almost, because is all this possibly like, oh, this is the guy that, was responsible for Baylor's death. This is the guy that did this. This is the guy who's, you know, got the Targaryen kid with him. It's none of that. It's just because of jealousy. <laughs> Damon's attracted to Dunk. Alan is not cool with that. He wants him for himself. And that's the whole thing. It could have been all these conspiracies. <laughs> but no, it's just simple jealousy. And you know what? I appreciate that. George R. R. Martin includes a lot of that in these stories. And, you know, sometimes... What could be a big conspiracy is really just something petty. <laughs> and that's, I think that's realistic, don't you? Yeah, oh, for sure. Definitely a lot of times uh, th there are potentially, you know, grand reasons for something, but really it's something petty. Yeah, like a big conspiracy theory of all things. Nah. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes maybe not even uh, petty, but coincidental or, uh, you know, 
accidental even, you know. So l- let me use an example of something from another fandom. I'm, I'm reading some... I, I, I love to read Star Wars novels and there's an example talking about the Emperor where they're like, someone's talking about the Emperor's grand plans and his vision for the galaxy and all this stuff. And, and this one person's like, that may be true, but let me put this... Let me give you another suggestion. Maybe the Emperor was just a really petty guy. <laughs> It's like he just really, he just, he's a petty man full of jealousies and insecurities, and he loved to punish people and be cruel to them from a position of power. And like, yeah, that's at least part of it. Like, how, you can't argue with that. Like, at least that it, it may not be like the whole thing, but it's probably a big part of his personality. Like, yeah, like these big, powerful beings are not immune. In fact, often more susceptible to these petty jealousies and things that... Sometimes they're driven by insecurity. Yeah, yeah. They they hide it really well because, well, they're capable in a lot of ways. It's not like people like that rise that high. They have to have skills. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting uh, human condition uh, topic to uh, consider. So let's move on to the actual tournament here. Nina notes that the heat is probably not a coincidence. George probably made that on purpose to fit in with the dragon dream theme that's happening. After all, you need extreme heat to hatch a dragon egg. And the prophecy slash dream is that an egg will hatch at White Walls. Well, um, we, of course, have Danny putting her eggs in the brazier and the wildfire at Summer Hall might be uh, a similar example of that. So that's pretty cool. That's a pretty subtle little thing going on. But I wondered why George decided to write the day as really hot. And well, Nina provides us with an option that I that I very much like. What do you think of that? I hadn't really considered it, but it is it is worth considering. We've pointed out many times how good writers in general, and Martin for sure, seem to have a reason for every word they stick in there. Uh, just now bringing it up, I wonder if maybe it's to create some contrast. It starts raining later. Yeah, that's true. Um, the mud and all that. Yeah, Rain the way storms come are usually like the meeting of two, you know, hot and cold or low and high pressure systems. So, you know, we have this heat and rain's about to come, storm's going to break, you know. Yeah. One uh, point from the beginning here, Kyle the Cat losing on purpose in a tournament full of people getting bribed to lose on purpose. (laughs) He doesn't get anything for it. It's like, oh man, (laughs) that is bad luck, dude. (laughs) I think you pointed out in here somewhere too that it like, you know, in hindsight, he would have so much better off being paired against someone else. Yeah. He's lucky to get this pairing. Because if he had, he could have beat them and proven himself, maybe gotten noticed. Even if he ends up throwing it to Coswell, at least he got that one win first. So. Yeah, then he would have had, then he would have had some like a, a ransom too to, to, to fall back yeah. on. Yeah. But yeah, he wouldn't exactly. have even had, he, you're right, he wouldn't have even had the idea. He wouldn't have come up with this stupid plan of losing on purpose if he wasn't paired against Caswell. He would have definitely not lost on purpose to someone else. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> unless he was unless bribed. bribed. Right, right. Which either way, he's getting something. So that was, yeah. So both Dunk and Kyle are like, yeah, we got the best possible draw we could. I got Caswell. You got the snail. And it's in both cases, it's the worst. Like the worst possible. <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> yeah. possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. But also, by the way, uh, in terms of Kyle the Cat, I wonder, we talk about how Glendon, very good chance he goes with them at the end. He travels with them, but Kyle might as well too, you know? Like he gets a reprieve probably because he sticks around. He's with Dunk and Egg is like, he's like, hey, Blood Raven, give money for him and him. And he doesn't specifically mention Kyle, but Kyle's not going to be in trouble. Kyle didn't join the conspiracy. In fact, Kyle's even, he finds Kyle talking to Blood Raven afterwards, you know, um, before he reveals himself. But so there's, 
in addition to the possibility that Kyle is actually a, a Blood Ravens agent, there's a chance that he's part of future stories, which I think that's what I was going to say is it, it, that might be it might be easier for Kyle to throw that match, even if it seems unwise, if it's part of a larger guy's, you know, right. if he is in cahoots with Blood Raven in the first place. Like if, if he's trying to get inside a, a house to like be a household night, it might be with the point of the purpose of spying, right? That might be right. why he's trying but, to do and, that. Yeah. And also, he's not really losing that much. If Blood Raven's gonna like, like, if you yeah. lose your horse, I'll just give you another horse. Absolutely, you know? yeah, you're totally right. Like, he's not actually, or maybe he even has five other horses. He's not necessarily a poor hedge knight in the first place. You yeah. Know? yeah, good point. Very good point. Yeah, well, point. Nina also points out that considering Kyle's case again, how often does intentional losing happen during jousting? I mean, Arthur probably didn't lose to Rhaegar. She uses that example. I agree with that. I don't think Arthur intentionally lost to Rhaegar. And say Barristan didn't lose to Rhaegar intentionally either. We, we, have, his inten- we have his internal monologue. We're like, man, if only I had beaten Rhaegar. You know, he wishes he had won the tournament. He doesn't think about, I shouldn't have taken that bribe. I shouldn't have lost on purpose. You'd think that if he did, if we had his inner monologue, we would know. So probably didn't do that. But another example we've cited in the past, Tywin may have suggested or told his bannerman to lose to Rhaegar at the tournament he hosted to celebrate Viserys' birth at Casterly Rock, which he planned on broaching the Cersei-Rhaegar marriage offer after that. He's like, Rhaegar wins, then we bring up the marriage. It was all part of his plan. You would think that Tywin wouldn't leave that to chance. He's like, okay, brothers, lose on purpose, okay? Because it was specifically noted that it was a lot of Tywin's own men that were losing. So like, yeah, that, see that I could buy, you know, because there's a, a clear goal in mind here. It's sim- and it's similar to this. Like they want this guy to win and they don't want him to know it <laughs> that he want, they want to pump him up. So, yeah. Unclear in the first tournament that Dunk went to, that was Ashford Meadows, right? Yes. Like it seemed if either they were being thrown or rigged matchups to Valar. Yeah, you're totally right. right. Yep. You're absolutely right. So, so it seems normal. It seems like, and this is the, we got a taste of that in that tournament. Here, we get even more into the underbelly of all the different like types of cheating and, and different goals that people have under the radar. I can tell you in, in card tournaments, a lot of times, it's not necessarily even underhanded, although it, often it is, but a lot of times people will throw matches to like their friend or their teammate. So when they think, like, I might be able to beat you right now, but you have a better chance in the long run of this tournament, your matchup yeah. or your energy level or whatever other reasons there might be for it. So it's, I, I don't know how to define normal, but if it's happening 10% of the time, you know, I don't know yeah. that's normal. So Dunk's suspicions uh, help get the reader thinking. It's kind of a pattern. Dunk gets a little suspicious about something. He's not on the right track. He doesn't think it all the way through. He doesn't have the right information, but it helps raise our suspicions a little bit. And here's another quote. Dunk wondered if the Master of Games was deliberately matching the Hedge Knights against each other. So no lordly needs suffer the ignominy of losing to one in the first round. Yeah. Uh, Dunk, did you not just notice that Kyle was pitted against Joffrey Caswell? Right. <laughs> I mean, right then, you know, <laughs> there's other examples. That's probably not the best observation, but still he's right to be considering. To be considering this. Yeah. yeah he's at least like, it's clicking in his head. Uh, I, I, don't, I wish I could remember in that first. Yeah, he did. He did consider it in that first tournament too. He, he at least observed it. You know, he was still in a point like, what an interesting coincidence rather than this is rigged. You know, he, his yeah. mind doesn't jump there. We've talked about the idea of like projecting yourself. Dunk wouldn't do that. So he wouldn't think someone else would. But it, it, once it happens enough times, he starts to think maybe someone else is doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But minor trivia here. Nina notes a page and a fray are the first 
tilt that Dunk sees. And the pages and Frey's have a relationship in the modern series, the Jamos Frey, which is an example of running out of names. Jamos. Yeah, I've never seen that name. <laughs> kind of like it. You but got jammed. You got jammed. <laughs> Jamos Frey. That's Walter's 13th son. So again, <laughs> when you're running out of names, you're like, I don't know. Jamos? <laughs> uh, he seems like a, a fray, doesn't he? <laughs> Jam yeah, from Parks yeah, and Rec. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he does. Yeah. And that's uh, a son by his Blackwood wife. And she's, uh, that's going to, Jamos is going to marry Sally Page. So there's the fray and the page. And their eldest son is Big Walder. So there you go. Sir Glendon beats some guy named Sir Argrave the Defiant who Dunk judges to be the tough older sword who knows his business. But Glendon takes him down easily, and that sets up, wow, Glendon's pretty darn good. <laughs> uh, Sir Argrave is from Nunny. That's the same town Eustace Osgray w- once claimed was under their control, but hasn't been for a while. It's uh, been outside of their control for a bit. Now, this is interesting, too, because it might be another example of someone who traveled pretty far. This is Golden Grove, which um, that's pretty far from the reach, right? This is in the, you know, we're in the Riverlands here. He would have probably been a, a warrior in the first Blackfire Rebellion. Anyone who's sort of grizzled almost certainly fought in the first rebellion too. So that's uh, a consideration and might be why he was chosen to be a household knight because of, you know, he's shown his loyalty. Maybe he uh, fought the Ironborn, you know, maybe he's fought against Dagon, things like that. So even though Dunk is less skilled and knowledgeable about jousting than he thinks, he's right to be uh, impressed by Sir Glendon, who is legitimately skilled and talented. He blazes through the lists, rolling overall in his path. Uh, And it's nice to see Dunk thinks of him internally as Fireball's son. In his brain, that's the phrase he uses, even as other people are laughing at Night of the Pussy Willows, that title. (laughs) So Glendon's doing the same thing Dunk did. Just like, you know, he's taken a, a risk uh, and arguably a bigger risk in some ways because Dunk notices he doesn't have proper armor. He doesn't have a proper faceplate. But unlike Dunk, Glendon's actually, actually really good. <laughs> he's actually quite skilled at this. So in that sense, it's much less of a risk. <laughs> By the way, I have to point out, even if Dunk isn't really a hedge knight, internally, he thinks of himself as one. That's true. But time and time again, he always considers himself. That is true. That is true. We just gave Dunk some praise for his emotional intelligence and some other things, but actually here, another line that's meant to be read in a different voice. This one will say Homer Simpson, who says, quick, Dunk snorted. He has a snail on his shield. How quick can he be? How can he be quick? (laughs) (laughs) I don't do a good Homer, so, you know, you got to imagine that one. But it's like he's being dismissive because of something that absolutely does not justify being dismissive. Like, you're judging him by his sigil? <laughs> like, I don't think that's a... <laughs> but he really leans into that, doesn't he? Doesn't he uh, with the centaur it, guy, right? He does it elsewhere, too. Yeah, yeah I think it was Coswell who was riding a centaur. And I was like, you should do better than that. You should ride better if he's got a centaur on his shield. <laughs> and it's, in a way, he's sort of right. Like, it, I think you've got another note on this, but I, I will point out that Martin does seem to put meaning into the sigils, right? Whether Dunk should read into it or not, Martin certainly seems to want us to. Yeah. And uh, and also, if Dunk had looked at it another way, which eventually he does, the snail sigil does fit. It should have been a warning. The snail hides in his shell. It's mm. not his real identity, what he's uh, revealing here. Yeah. So. Yeah, some people say that Uthor is perhaps the most 
he fills the definition of mystery night as well as anyone in the story. You know, he does. Dunk's mm-hmm. a mystery night. Uthor, Underleaf is a mystery night. Damon's a mystery night. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that qualify for that, but Uthor's case is as strong as anyone's. Also, just as a note here for centaurs, there's uh, the world of... Plum, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah, Plum, yeah. Rainer Plum is a mystery Absolutely, night. yeah, you're right. Um, and in, even Glendon, sort of, in a way, like, what's his heritage? Like, yeah. who's his father, you yeah. know? So, yeah, just different aspects of that. Uh, for others, it's a mystery why they're there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> different yeah. sort of, what's a mystery why this knight is here? <laughs> He's not a mystery knight. His purpose is. Quick note about centaurs in the world of ice and fire. There's... A similar note to what we've seen in the real world, which is the the myth of centaurs comes from people who hadn't seen horse riding before. There's a couple examples in, in real world history. Uh, for example, the first time people in South America saw horses brought over by Europeans because horses aren't native to South or North America. So they kind of thought it was one creature. They thought the Spaniards were centaurs. Yeah. yeah or And the ancient Greeks thought that people from a lot of people from Thessaly or the horse horse countries were centaurs because they come from the hill countries where there's not as much horsing, horsing, not as much horsing around. So yeah, so there's a couple that like this, this sort of mythology exists in a couple of places. I just never seen something like that before. You've never seen a horse or a person on a horse. So you see it and you're like, well, that's just one creature. <laughs> but yeah, so you're right. There's like a, a recurring theme of sometimes the author, sometimes the character, sometimes both putting a lot of emphasis on sigils. And Illyrio who is not from Westeros, has kind of a take on it uh, from A Dance with Dragons, and it kind of sums it up pretty well here. And here's the line. You Westerosis are all the same. You sow some beast upon a scrap of silk, and suddenly you are all lions or dragons or eagles. I could take you to a real lion, my little friend. (laughs) The prince keeps a pride in his menagerie. Would you like to share a cage with them? (laughs) (laughs) The Lords of the Seven Kingdoms did make rather much of their sigils. Tyrion's been given the example. He's like, yeah, I guess you're kind of right, Illyria. We do kind of make too much of a big deal out of that. And he's like, yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> well point, Illyrio. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just the Lord's doing that, though, clearly, <laughs> because uh, this is Dunk doing it. And, well, yeah, the snail also grasps this concept. But uh, he uses it to his advantage. We'll say it's a form of sigil Aikido. Yes, yes. Using it to his advantage. Using their prejudices against themselves. Using it as a weapon. So let's talk about the snail. Very interesting character. He's knocked out by the snail. Uh, It's pretty brief this time there. He's with the maester like four hours, which is like, man, you really recovered quickly. Dunk is a very tough man. You're right right to give him that 18 constitution. It might should be 19. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also funny, the maester says something kind of a little offbeat here. He says, those who wagered coin on you were most distraught. You know, like, well, it's a kind of an odd thing to say, like of all the observations to have, like, really, you're really paying that close attention to the betting, uh, maester? So I kind of think maybe he was one of the ones who bet on him. He might have been one of those who wagered good coin on him. So he may also not know that size doesn't matter for jousting, which, well, the snail is going to say, my sigil drives up wagering. That's the point. It makes betting on, you know, we get more better odds that way. And the maester may be an example of that. Real quick, I oh, wanted to give ahead, yeah. the, the, the maester more, more credit than that. Okay. I think that maybe he just more has the, his finger on a pulse of things. Entirely he's probably possible. getting reports of the tournament, the wounded people coming in. Yeah. He's, he's seen these tournaments plenty of times. 
he might have been smart enough to know not to make that bet or that things can be manipulated or whatever. Yeah, but, you're right. You're right. But it, it would also add up if he had lost the bet. Yeah. <laughs> so the quote is, size will always <laughs> we'll impress the fools, though it means little and less in jousting. Will was able to get odds of three to one against me. Lord Shawnee gave five to one. The fool. <laughs> <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> and so and Dunk was that. Once again, this is Dunk just thinking, I expect to win because, uh, you know, he's so much bigger. This guy kind of reminds me of Braun, like an older, more established Braun, like very skilled, very amoral, but patient, ambitious and patient at the same time. Like he looks at everything in terms of profit potential. He doesn't really uh, have a lot of loyalty but he does have loyalty to things that work, right? He, he's going to be loyal yeah. to, to success. And I, I appreciate that you say amoral because I don't know if he's straight up immoral. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. He's doing dishonest things, but he's also doing, I don't know how to say, safe things, yeah. correct things. Like, I don't think he ever said something that was straight up wrong or inaccurate or even unwise. Nor is he like know? a psychopath or anything like that. I mean, right, right. That. He's not <laughs> trying to be mean or evil. He's selfish, I guess. Yeah, he's you definitely know, selfish. He's, very selfish. He's but. willing to be dishonest, mm -hmm. but he's giving Dunk good advice. Like, look, man, you, you might not like the idea of hanging out with me, but you'll make money. You mess around these Targaryens, you're going to get burned. Like, yeah, he's right he about that. He's giving good advice, you know, and that's however yeah. selfish he is. He's 100% right about that. He does end up getting burned. So <laughs> that is how he dies or drowned in sand because of fire. So it, it's more uh, true than Uthor may even realize. So yeah, he shares his name with Uthor of the Hightower, legendary king of High House Hightower, who married Maris the Maid before she was claimed by the so-called gray giant Argoth Stoneskin who apparently won the first ever tournament in Westeros. So that's a fun little note here because, um, well, tournaments, right? We want, we'll turn Say that name again. I, I wanted to see if I can keep this trivia in my brain. Argoth Stoneskin, a.k.a. the Grey right. Giants. There's like two nicknames. He's got Stoneskin and the Grey Giant. Yeah. By the way, Sean, if you look at the Reach map that Michael Clarfeld did, he did all the children of Garth Greenhand, one of which mm. is Maris the Maid, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Garth Greenhand had a lot of children, a lot of famous children, and their ancestry to those children is the most important thing in terms of prestige, family prestige in the Reach. Its connection to those families, uh, to those figures is, is the source of a lot of, the, of that. Uh, so we don't know if Uthor himself actually took place or took part in that first legendary tournament, but Clearly, things have changed since then. If people were cheating back then, we don't know about it. But this, this Uthor is uh, <laughs> going his own way, clearly. One could see, you know, he's really rich. You can see the money. He's just got stacks of okay. money he's counting. I, I don't think we made it clear there yeah. that Argoth, he won. Yeah, he, he did won, win. But Uthor took Maris. Like, they still got married. That's true. So that is kind of a connection. Uthor won without winning, which is kind of what this Uthor is doing. He wins without winning because he, <laughs> he doesn't want to win. Winning, it goes against his goals because that throws off the betting. One win, couple of win, or even a couple of wins, makes him famous. And all of a sudden, his ability to bet on himself gets a lot worse. So it's, it is kind of strange, but really, you can see how the math would work out that way. Fame does have another cost. thought. Another thought, by the way, tying back to some of the other discussion about squires and sergeants who maybe are kind of similar, you know, that you could see how Uther might eventually want more than one squire. Like he's yeah. got enough stuff. He doesn't want a castle. He's going to need more help lugging his stuff around, keeping up with his finances and things like that. He might 
not because it starts to bring too much attention to himself. Yeah. And maybe he even does have three other squires that stay out of town when he's here for the tournament. He just brings this one person with him. But yeah, um, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And you could see also how eventually, like in the military, like if if uh, an officer had a squire, servant, sergeant, right? Eventually, as the unit gets bigger, you need more of these sergeants to handle yeah. breakdown of the units underneath you. And you can see how maybe a knight who isn't is tied to a hedge knight, right? If they're successful in a long career, they might have more than one squire. But how old is the fiddler? He's not some veteran knight who's <laughs> yeah, slowly 22, yeah. accumulated. Yeah. <laughs> Another take here, Uthor's last name, Underleaf. That, you know, Underleaf, it's, it, it kind of sounds a little sneaky. Underleaf. Underhanded. Yeah, Nina suggests Underhanded. I also thought of Underhill, which is the name, which is the uh, surname, the, the assumed name from Bilbo. Or in, in Lord of the Rings, or is that Frodo? One of them goes by the name Underhill. I think I think Bilbo as a as a you know a name to conceal himself. So correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, I do appreciate corrections. To to scare Dunk a little more, the snail has this line of pointing out all these enemies that Dunk might have. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the snail's not lying. He doesn't actually know who bribed him. He was bribed through an intermediary. So these are good guesses. Sure, he's trying to intimidate Dunk and win him over. But he's he's not like reaching with this take. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Prince Baylor. Yeah, and you can see that he's not necessarily trying to manipulate Dunk. He's trying to help him. Yeah, you know? yeah, he, it's and it's both. he's yeah. clever enough, right? He he has a certain wisdom. He's been around for a while. He could piece this together. Yeah, Prince Baylor was well loved. The bright prince had friends as well. Friends who would not have forgotten the cause of his exile. Think of my offer, sir. The snail may leave a trail of slime behind him, but a little slime will do no will do a man no harm. Else, if you dance the dragons, you must expect to burn. There it is. Yep. There it is. Yeah. And of course, that second part, Prince Baylor's friends, like if someone was going to do something to him over Baylor, yeah, maybe that would have happened by now. But Baylor's friends are probably decent people. Like Baylor was a good man. Arian's friends, those are the ones you really should worry about. Like those are like cruel, greed. Like that man would attract some scumbags, some psychos on his side. So. You know, he mentions that and it makes me wonder, is that foreshadowing? Are we going to see someone that is more on Arian's side get mad? Hmm, good call. Or Arian himself. Or Arian himself. Yeah, That's good true. point. Yeah, good, well point. Yeah, because Arian is coming back. Arian and, and Dunk and Egg will all fight in the third Blackfire Rebellion together. So, yeah, and Arian's still Egg's older brother, you know? And, uh, yeah, so... Hmm. So we don't know when the exile ends, though. We don't know when it ends. We know it's just it's definitely over by 219, but that's seven years from now. It probably ends fairly soon from now because it's supposedly just a few years, and this is already like year three or near year three of that. So, so in one stroke, the snail gives us a lot of information on what the tournament circuit is really like. The implication is that he's not the only guy like this. Maybe there's not lots of men like him, but he's probably not the only one. He's not probably, probably not the first guy to figure out rigged gambling in tournaments. Like almost certainly not, right? Like he's pro- he may have even been taught by someone that did this before him. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's also something people can figure out. Like it, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. Like plenty of gamblers out there. And and that's also a neat thing too, because the theme of gambling is, is present in this story. Uh, it's not perhaps as prominent as some of the other themes, but peak is taking a major gamble here. And so is Damon. They're like gambling on these dreams. Uh, Damon, of course, doesn't think it's a gamble. He sees it as like fate. He sees it as destiny. But 
His dreams don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we understand why that is a gamble. He's gambling on his interpretation in a sense. So you can call it a gamble, even if he doesn't recognize it as that. But I think peak really is gambling. Um, in a way he, he's rolling the dice on houses, joining them. He's rolling the dice on their attitudes towards blood. More on that in a minute when we get to the reveal, cause that's a, a major topic when we actually have peak on screen again in, inside, uh, the fiddler's tent. It, but it's another, it's an example of that theme that we cited at the beginning recruitment. We've got people trying to recruit each other here. The snail is like, Hey man, you know, well, let me bring you over on my side. We can make some money together. Why don't you join me? And there's just a lot of that going on. There's people trying to recruit people for the Black Fires. The, you know, Damon's trying to recruit everyone. Uh, <laughs> he's just trying to be show that charisma off. Meanwhile, um, there's some other people that we're not sure about. Like Blood Raven has some spies. Some of them may have been recruited well in advance, but some of them he might have turned in the moment. He might have walked up to some people just sitting there and be like, hey man, you know, what's happening? You know, can I bribe you? You know, like the conversation <laughs> wouldn't go exactly like that. Right? Like, it seems not unlikely that he may have made some connections day of or at the event. Um, don't you think? Yeah, it makes sense. that he. I don't know how to say this exactly, but he seems to have warmed up well to this group of hedge knights. Yeah. And, uh, and especially if he already has some people in place, it might make it easier. I was thinking about, like, the gambling, too. Like, if Uthor had one or two other knights yeah. who were also out there making bets, propping up odds, spreading, you know, rumors or whatever, mm. uh, how much more effective it would be. That's true. And same thing with Blood Raven. If he has two or three other people, you know, already in place as guards or squires or whatever, like dropping hints, you know, yeah. you know, getting people ready to shift gears. And the thing, an element to this that's really important is desperation. What the snail is capitalizing on is he knows Dunk is a hedge nine. He knows Dunk just lost everything because he lost it to him. He's like, all right, you have nothing. So, like, Dunk wouldn't have accepted this when he had his armor. He's not accepting it now, but he definitely wasn't going to accept it when he didn't need to. So he's trying to capitalize on Dunk's desperation here, which I think is, if you think about it, that's probably something that happens at tournaments. Like, you find someone that just lost everything and make them an offer when they're in that desperate state. That has happened in every era of human existence. People find people who are desperate and get them to do, get you know, recruit them for... Sometimes you recruit them for the right reasons. You you have noble goals in mind, but sometimes you you're looking for desperate people because you want them to do underhanded stuff, and they would not normally agree to it. When they're desperate, is the best time to get them to agree to it because you can't you don't have the luxury of of being your as moral as you want to when you're you know starving or what have you, right? And it's why I you wonder know, about that with Kyle the cat. He lost everything, you know, did is is that when Maynard is working on him or was this something ahead of time? So there's just lots of examples like this. There's other things to consider here too. Some of this we'll even touch on, but the idea that Dunk right now has enough honor that he's not, no way he's going to do this thing for Uthor. Yeah. But what if someone depended on him? What if he had a kid he had to feed, mm. right? He, like his squire happens to be a freaking prince, so he's not really worried about <laughs> him. But if Dunk was more, not just for himself, but desperate for someone else that he cared about, maybe he would go along with yeah, Uthor. That's a good you know? point, yeah. And I also wonder when Uthor says, like, hey, 20 tournaments, that should be enough. I'm like, 20? Holy <laughs> crap. Like, But I wonder if that was an angle Uthor was making that 20 might seem extreme, but he might get Dunk to do three, you know? Yeah. And it, think how much better <laughs> off Dunk would be after three tournaments. He gets enough money to get a horse and armor back, and he learns a little bit more about jousting from Uthor. He legitimately might have been better off if yeah. he went along, even if he's a hit to his pride, that it 
we kind of know Dunk is not going to take that hit, so his pride is not worth it. But it might have been worth it for the sake of, I'm thinking about like Ned doing it for Sansa. Yes, or whatever, you know? yes, absolutely. Very good example. Here's another thing Dunk should have taken, this bet that Uthor offers. Here's a quote. <laughs> Sir Uthor arched an eyebrow. His cusk grove is as fond of silver as the next man, I promise you. I shall draw the old ox next. Then the boy. Would you care to wager on it? So Cosgrove, of course, is the matchmaker. Yet another example of just like, yep, like this guy, you know, of course I can bribe him. Or I have already bribed him, which is another yeah. example. <laughs> but this is the guy, this is the, the master of the games. But Uthor is wrong. He, he does go the old ox, and then he goes up against Black Tom, which never, doesn't actually happen because then the egg accusation interrupts it. But when the announcement happens, we get a, a follow-up quote here. Dunk glanced over at Sir Uthor in time to see the snail's smile go sour. This is not the match he paid for. Master of Games has crossed him up. But why? And that's kind of funny because he wanted to face Glendon and he ends up facing Black Tom. It might have been better to face Black Tom. Glendon's really, really good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. It is. Yeah, I thought that was a a really interesting, on a lot of levels, one thing it got me thinking about a lot, I, I think about this in general sometimes is, how I would cast this. Yeah. When this gets made into uh, some sort of film adaptation. But I think this would be a great performance. Whoever plays the snail mm. has got a lot of opportunity. I think this would be a great character. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. And and I also, I think that was a really good moment too. Like, I, I agree, I will point out, because I agree with Shay and a lot of people, this would be better off animated because mm. you don't have to worry about finding an actor big enough to play dumb, <laughs> egg yeah, aging yeah. up yeah. and things like that. That, that whole moment when he raises the eyebrow is like, uh, oh, really? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think I'll get that matchup. And, but also, yeah, the way the matchup doesn't go the way he thinks. And, and that moment, too, if I remember right, Dunk starts it like in this quote, he's like, Master Games, cross him up. But why? Dunk starts to piece it together. Yes. And it's another uh, technique of George, because as Dunk is scrolling through in his mind, it's like, well, there's this, there's that. And that only leaves. And, you know, oh. if you, in your mind, piece it together is blend and ball. Yeah. But suddenly that thought gets interrupted yeah. by the accusation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really well done, actually. Yeah, the, the way it all comes together. George does that a few times, just as something is about to be revealed. Someone bursts in the room. Wait! You know, <laughs> it's going to happen again here. Yeah. A small note here, continuing on our theme of discussing squires and the way they're treated and the way Dunk is just an outlier, how well he treats Egg. All that we, we mentioned that Dunk doesn't ever actually hit Egg, cloud him in the ear, except for to the one time he gives him, quote, half a cloud in the ear to actually help him avoid danger. It, it was to avoid a worse injury. That's the only time Dunk actually clouds him in the ear. There was literally a spear on his chest. Exactly. Right? Or, like, to his neck, yeah. I think. It was whatever. Same yeah. difference. Yeah. But Uthor hits his squire in the side of the head, which is basically cloud in the ear for a very small mistake in the, during the scene, like in front of somebody else. So it just reminds you, like this is sort of provides that contrast. Like this was an unimportant mistake that this guy made, you know, like you didn't notice the dragon on this, on this coin (laughs) properly. So he gets hit for that, you know? <laughs> it's like, geez. yeah, it seems like Uthor is making, I, I don't know how to quote it. We'll say in modern day terms, is making thousands of dollars. Yeah. And this squire made a mistake that might be hundreds of dollars. Yeah, because it's not like the coin is worth it. They just have also, to melt it down. He still gets to keep the right, gold. It's just a little yeah. effort has to go into yeah. it. But on top of it, it's, it's like a relatively uh, easy mistake to make. Like, Dunk 
when he's even being questioned, it takes a minute to figure it out. You yeah. know, when he already knows something is up, it still takes a minute for him to realize it. Part of it, yeah, part of it is the name. It's Daron versus Damon, and the name is so similar. It's only one letter different, and he's not that good at reading. So, like, you know, it, it, it adds up why he didn't notice right away. He's like, wait, beard, no beard. Like, what the heck? It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like a meta moment there with the coin because on one hand, Uthor is showing his awareness of this. He notices something that they don't notice. On the other hand, he didn't notice all the Blackfire stuff happening. He doesn't realize this is a traitor's tournament. That's the what. Like, he's so aware, but he's not aware of the politics. He's aware of super keyed into the tournament aspect, but not like the big picture of who all these yeah. people are. <laughs> and it, that was a moment I referenced earlier when Dunk does piece it together. He says, Damon! You know, yeah, and he's uh, he has already been told this is a traitor's tournament. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is clue fifteen sixteen or something. It also <laughs> so it's it's a really cool moment because it does all this, but it also provides even more backstory. It's also like, wow, this rebellion was really serious. This guy had his own coins. Like, geez, yeah. Because Robert didn't have coins during Robert's rebellion. He had them after, but <laughs> you know, after he won, but not during. So because he won so quick. That is part of it. He won so quick. But Damon, the, the, Damon lost fairly quick. I mean, it was maybe about a year. I don't know. Still, pretty quick. Pretty quick. Pretender coinage is a real world thing as well. It's happened a few times. Um, Nina gives us a couple examples. Henry V of France, which who was the last male of the legitimate male line of Louis XV of France, minted his own coins in 1831, proclaiming himself Henricus V and using the traditional title Lilies, sorry, the traditional Lilies of the French royal family while the would-be Carlos VII of Spain of the Carlist line of Spanish royal pretenders issued his own coins as Carlos VII in 1875. So it's like part of the war is competing coins, you know, like, hey, better coins fighting than people. I don't know. I think that's uh, less devastating, right? (laughs) Another funny moment here, Egg just hasn't quite shaken his maybe uh, elitism, you know? It's the second time he, he, he has to be corrected on baseborn versus bastardborn. <laughs> Dunk's like, does Blood Raven have an exit? Why would he? He's baseborn. And he said, he called him baseborn in uh, The Sworn Sword also. And he's like, no, bastardborn, yeah. not baseborn. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> I wonder too, by the way, if that's another opportunity for George to remind the reader. Yeah. That he's not actually, because again, that's it's a good point. Yeah. Potential that someone would have, these stories weren't released all together, and there's a lot of information in there. So not only is it a good technique for George to remind us exactly of Blood Raven's identity, but also to demonstrate it can be a little stubborn, you know, yeah. like uh, in addition to maybe some ingrained elitism from his Targaryen family, but he also can be a little stubborn in general. Yeah, yeah. From Karina, here's a fun fact. Since you mentioned Charles II in your last episode, Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie, so John and Ygritte, are both descendants of Charles II. Incest! Yeah. <laughs> incest. <laughs> yeah, by that standard of incest, we're all incestuous because this is like <laughs> how many generations back? Like 10, 12, 13, 14. But still, it is kind of funny. But uh, yeah, it's like, it's like that thing with Genghis Khan where if you live in China, you're like, odds are you're like, you have a very good chance of having some of his DNA because he... It's something like 15%. Yeah, it's some really crazy, crazy high. number. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not Charles II. not only did he... High, but, yeah raped so many women, but also killed so many other people. Like yeah. He just reduced the population by such a also insanely significant amount. Yeah, so. it's true. There, All those things factored together, plus just the passage of time. Khan was 900 years ago or so, and so you've got all those yeah. people, all his descendants but, having more and more descendants and more and more descendants. Yeah, just it's just exponential, yeah. 
That's why we don't call it incest because it's, it's like, yeah, well, if that's the standard of incest, then yeah, we're all, we're all incest. <laughs> By the way, just a small note of a little example of Dunk dodging the knighthood question. Uthor asked him how he came to knighthood. He's like, yeah, Sir Arlen found me in Flea Bottom and promised he would teach me all these things. <laughs> but he never actually says that Sir Arlen knighted him. <laughs> he just says mm-hmm. that he found him and trained him. Yeah, yeah. The tourney, part two. Let's, let's get back to the tournament. Dunk re-encounter after he's back on his feet, after he's knocked down after the offer from the snail. He encounters uh, Glendon, who's in the opposite state of Kyle because Kyle has lost everything. Me- meanwhile, Glendon is rolling in wealth now all of a sudden, just dominating, getting ransoms. Uh, but paradoxically, he's in more danger, even though Kyle has nothing because uh, Glendon's making enemies left and right. It's a classic textbook case of mo money mo problems right that's the technical term for it (laughs) the theme of recruitment continues right on here with one of the very few earnest and honest attempts i'll start i thought if i showed them all how good i was they'd have no choice but to admit i was my father's son but they won't even now they just won't some never will dunk told him doesn't matter what you do others though they're not all the same I've met some good ones, thought a moment. When the tourney's done, Egg and I mean to go north. Take service at Winterfell and fight for the Starks against the Ironmen. You could come with us. The north was a world all its own, Sir Arlen always said. No one up there was like to know the tale of Penny Jenny and the Knight of the Pussy Willows. No one will laugh at you up there. They will know you only by your blade and judge you by your worth. So that's, so that's a great line. Like We had to quote that one, right? It's such a good... Uh earnest, like I said, an earnest and honest attempt at recruitment. He's not asking him to serve. He's like, hey, join us. Let's be companions. Let's be equals. Not like, hey, come work for me. You know, that's one of the differences. Of course, Glendon's making so much cash here. He's like, yo, let's travel in style. (laughs) I'll hire some dudes. (laughs) Like, I got all this money now. I got all these horses. Yeah. (laughs) Point out real quick, too, that for the the keen uh, ear, we'll note that Sean probably didn't catch this, but that is a quote from Better Call Saul. <laughs> it's probably our most quoted line from Better Call Saul, in fact. Which line? He, he just won't. <laughs> so, oh, oh, oh. When, when Saul is, is working with the old folks home on their legal sediment, settlement, sediment? I said yeah, sediment. sediment, legal sediment, legal <laughs> settlement. And, and one of the old ladies is like talking about her cats and how one of them. Yeah, we'll Oscar clean. and Felix. One of them. I remember that now. Like, Oscar will clean himself, but Felix, he he just won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's very endearing because it's like yeah, this woman wants to talk about her cats, and we we get it, we get it, we like talking about our cats. So, <laughs> yeah. Also, rereading the tournament gives you a different look at some of these scenarios. Like the first time through, and you're reading it, it's like, wow, Sir Galtry the Green has a really close match against John the Fiddler. Ten lances they go. They go by ten times. Like, wow, really close. But no, not really. It looks like Sir Galtry is making a good show of it. It actually might mean that Fiddler is so bad that Galtry has to keep going bad. It's like, dude, knock me off my horse already. <laughs> yeah. Because like that's, I think of that because Glendon's judgment is really harsh. Glendon, who knows his business, is like, I might not be able to lose to him if I was trying. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, hmm, is he really that bad? He might be. I don't know. Like, it could be that Galtry's that good also. Yeah, he's just and, dancing around, and, like pretending, yeah. Yeah, because one, you have to be pretty good to throw something. Yeah. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, and yeah. especially throw it and not make it look obvious. 
And Galtrey might have a certain amount of pride. He might not. He might have been really begrudging that he has to do this. He's like, I'll do it. That's true. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. It's. I'm still gonna make it. You know, a challenge. Think about know? like what Dunk said. Dunk's like, yeah. Like if I keep losing to you, then everyone's gonna think I'm terrible. But like, it less so if you lose close matches, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point here. Now, this is funny because the setup of this whole thing is so clumsy and so ill-conceived that they have to take action against Uthor and Glendon, even though Glendon would have been a really good recruit for them. And Uthor is nothing, like, they should they don't yeah, have to bother. he would have jumped right on board. Yeah, yeah. they could have just been, yeah, Glendon would have joined them and Uthor would been like, yeah, just give me a little cash and I'm out. Like, Uthor was already trying to lose, like, just like Kyle the Cat. He's like, he wasn't, actually a threat to them at all, but because they have their wires crossed and don't understand what's going on, their intelligence is weak compared to Blood Ravens. Yes. It's pathetic compared to Blood Ravens. <laughs> they played this all so badly. They could have made these guys allies, which it's almost too bad because Damon, that's the attitude he wanted. He's like, let's recruit all these people. Let's make friends out of it. We need as many helpers as we can, which in that sense, he's right. But Peak is like, no, only the certain people. Like, no, man, you need you need help. <laughs> so on one hand, I guess yeah, he's trying to avoid see. like conspirators, like too many cooks spoil the soup, like too many, you know, letting the secret out. But, still. but we already saw like two random guards seem to know. What yeah, was. like it's just too you easy know, to figure like, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, you could see also in other ways that they seemed kind of at odds with the fiddler. Remember I pointed out, he seemed almost a prisoner. Yeah. When they found him up on a roof of the dunk, they're like, come with us now. Yeah, you know? yeah. He who controls the king controls the crown. Yeah, it's kind of like that thing. They're, they're really ruling him as, as he, uh, like, they're making him into a puppet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a... Ooh, there a parallel there we should have got from the first one with the puppets? Oh, the puppets. Oh, yeah, the dragon maybe, puppets, yeah. in fact. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. That's a good... That's something to think about. Yeah, we'll keep that one in mind for the wrap-up. So there's a possible oops here, or maybe it's just meant to be a nickname. It's not very explained. It's obviously not a big deal. But the character... Lord Bulwer, the older guy who Blood Raven mocks for one of his eyes being <laughs> dimming, even <laughs> which we joked about before. At one point, he's called Lord Buford. Another point, he's called Lord Theomor. So well, I don't know what his real name is. Maybe he's just, you know, he's both. He's Buford Theomor Bulwer. <laughs> uh, his armor is nicely uh, black fire colored, red armor with black horns. That's the, the basically how it would look. You know, Damon Blackfire had red armor with black sigil. So that's kind of fitting. Um, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek joke by George here. There's, there's a note that he killed 40 men on the red grass field. Now, just like so many other things, it's just said he killed 40 men on the red grass field. It didn't say what side he was on. Now, of course, by yeah. now we know yeah. what side he was on. And, and Maynard, uh, in addition to denigrating him for his age, also denigrates him. He's like, yeah, that number goes up every year, you know? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> but when he's knocked off his horse, his, he's dragged 40 yards, it says, in the stirrup. <laughs> so he probably wishes that was exaggerated. But Now, House Bulwer has a small but notable role in the main series. Alisande Bulwer is one of Marjorie's, like, women that's around her. But it's wrong to call her a woman because she's not even 10. So this is... She's not one of, like, conspirators. She's not one of Marjorie's, like, in-on-it type of girls. She's just, you know, a noble girl who's actually the... Probably the lady of of House Bulwer right now. I think she inherited, but so which is why she's kept close at court. Meanwhile, Black Jack Bulwer is on the wall, but he is dead. He's one of the ones who was sent in a group of three mm. with by John, and he's one in like of, a scouting trip. Yeah, he's right? one of the ones with with the three yeah. heads that was found close by. 
So, oops, that didn't go well for him. Uh, also, another house of note is House Kai. They're the one that Dunk hears people having sex in, apparently. Um, that's a blue pavilion covered with sunflowers. They also traveled pretty far. That's, that's why it's worth mentioning them because they're, they're near House Costain, which we know they're one of the more prominent houses here. Now, the Costains are son-in-law to Lord Butterwell, so they actually have a connection. But the Kaiser, you know, this is near... Old Towns. So it's pretty far, but it's still in the reach. So, you know, there's still a reach house, which is the, this, the heart of support for the Blackfires. But still, one of the farther houses, because this is, uh, you know, down on the coast. Also, the Hasties are there. White Bend on Purple um, might belong to them. Actually, this one's not certain because the Hasties are really small. We don't know of a Hasty before Sir Bonifer Hasty. This may not even be the right house, but the Hasties are from the Stormlands, which would also be interesting because we don't know of any other Stormlands houses in attendance. Um, in case you forgot who Bonifer Hasty is, he's the leader of the Holy Hundred, aka the Holy Eighty Six, who are currently in charge of Heron Hall. A really holy guy in charge of Heron Hall—that'll solve it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, before he goes to talk to the snail. Um, so we're jumping. We, we wanted to cover all of the snail as much as possible there. But before he actually talks to him, that's when he runs into Maynard and Kyle. And that's when he sees them talking quietly. And that's why I wonder, you know, what are they talking about? Like, Kyle's already lost. And maybe this is Maynard, like, discuss, they're discussing plans, like more things they can do if they're in on it together. Or Maynard is recruiting him. Or they're just talking. You know, it doesn't have to be something conspiratorial. It doesn't have to be important. But if it is, these are, you know, reasonable possibilities, I think. Even if Cat isn't actively working for Blood Raven, the Cat isn't working for Blood Raven. Blood Raven can still get information from. Yeah, him, like what have so. people been talking about? You know, what have you been hearing? Yeah, just yeah, exactly. Um, this is perhaps the peak of Maynard just trying escalating his attempts to tell Dunk what's going on without directly telling him what's going on. <laughs> so here's a, a euphemism that gets used several times, which is the the term a storm. Uh, the storm is coming. And this first example is Plum Raven says, the boy is fiddling up a storm. They should go before it breaks. And here's a quote. He says, you should get out of here. He's like, well, where should we go? Sir Maynard shrugged. Anywhere. Winterfell, Summer Hall, Shy by the Shadow. It makes no matter so long as it's not here. Take your horse and armor. Slip out the postern gate. You won't be missed. The snail's got his next tilt to think about. And the rest have eyes only for the jousting. He's like, get out of here. Get, go away. You know, which is funny too, because he, he actually names a destination they talked about going to the stumps because he's heard, he already heard him talking about Winterfell. He's like, yeah, just go there. You're already talking about going, just go. And it's funny because he goes Winterfell, Summer Hall, like winter, summer. But it's also the place Egg's father happens to live. He's like, now how would Sir Maynard know about that? Unless he's, yeah. <laughs> well, we've already covered that. And Ash Eye by the Shadows, just like, just anywhere. Like he names the literally the farthest away city. And just get the heck out. It doesn't matter where you go. The where doesn't matter. Just not here. And that's when he gets him, leads him about as close as he does. He's like, okay, who do you think's going to win? He's like, uh, the fiddler? Yeah. Yeah. Now why? He's like, oh, I just have a feeling. He's like, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is so bold and blunt about it. Then to repeat the metaphor, Alan Cockshaw uses the same basic line here, quote, a few drops of rain, and all the bold lords go squealing for shelter. What will they do when the real storm breaks? I wonder. And then Sir Glendon, we hear that Gorman Peak tried to recruit him, and he says this. He said there was a storm coming, like the likes of which Westeros has not seen for a generation. He would need swords and men to wield them. Yeah. 
Well, maybe maybe a fire would be the more appropriate metaphor with a Y. A fire, a black fire. Mm-hmm. So it's a flaw peak in peak for sure. He doesn't get a huge component of what Damon Blackfire is so appealing. Damon would not do things like this. Damon would not do this like exclusionary, like lose for me type stuff. Like that's the attitude that Damon got, like knightly, chivalrous. So this stuff is just working against that. The ideals that Damon inspired in other people Gormans is going directly against that. And that's reflected perhaps no better than anywhere else than Sir Glendon's really good line when he's pulled from the dungeon here, he says. My father died for him. I would have been his man and gladly. I would have fought for him, killed for him, died for him. But I could not lose for him. Right? And and this is, of course, paralyzed by Dunk refusing to lose for the snail. So kind of staying and building these themes gradually throughout the story to get to these more climactic moments that are similar. Uh, not directly, but Egg agrees with Plum Raven saying, yeah, we should leave. <laughs> he even says <laughs> Summerall. He's like, maybe we should borrow money. And, and Dunk has uh, a kind of a good philosophy, a philosophical response here that I appreciate. Hard things only grow harder if you put them off. That's what she said. Leo. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, yeah, so even fireballs can turn to blue balls in, in such... Oh. <laughs> Yeah, so he talks about having a proper master at arms, like Egg saying he's like, or, or Dunk says, "You'll have a proper master at arms." And he's like, "I don't want a proper master at arms. I want you, sir." And and it's funny to think about because there's actually some pretty bad master at arms. Fireball was a master at arms, and that didn't go very well. Like he encouraged Damon mm-hmm. to rebel. You know, Sir Alistair Thorne, who we mentioned earlier, a really bad master at arms. And then there was that guy uh, that was a traitor to Aegon the Third forget his name, but he has a ton of parallels to Alistair Thorne, the, the one that was uh, also, uh, he was sent to the wall. So, you know, he ended up in the same place. So yeah, there's some pretty bad, as a master at arms, being proper master at arms isn't always a good thing. You know, the, the, the skill at arms part. Now, on the other hand, there's people like Brienne's master at arms, who was great. Like that guy, he was insightful and gave strategies that were appropriate for her skills at and um, disposition. So yeah, there are obviously good ones out there too. Uh, I really appreciated when he said, because Dunk was trying to give the Fiddler credit for not taking people's arms and horses and such when he won. And Plum Raymond says, gallant jesters come easy when your purse is fat with gold. And I think that's a, a really good observation and something that Egg maybe should learn too. You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier when you're a millionaire to you know, donate a hundred or $10,000. But if you only have $10,000, you know, you're barely paying for yourself and your family. It's harder to be generous. And so when someone does do it, it's extra gallant. Well, sticking with our uh, occasional Simpsons quoting, uh, as Homer said, with with $10,000, we'd be millionaires. (laughs) 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 Yep. Ah, can't help it. But, But no, you're right. This is a really good take because the inversion of that is something we've already talked about. Like, well, yeah, it's easy to be gallant and generous when you're rich. On the other hand, your options are limited and you might have to do dishonorable things when you're broke, right? That's yeah. a big theme we've talked and about. Already. That would be the easy thing for Dunk to do. Just leave town and don't give the snail yeah. the horse. Or to take but the snail's not doing, yeah. yeah, but Dunk's not doing the easy thing. He's doing the right thing. Yeah, no chance, no choice, sort of. <laughs> a milder version of that, but still, yes. uh, but still taking on a lot of personal suffering to maintain his honor with bravery. And, and it, he really doesn't even consider the other. You know, he doesn't even, he's like, eh. I mean, he maybe briefly considers leaving, but he doesn't consider the snail's offer even for a second. Not even, does not entertain it. Yeah. 
Eve's dropping moment number two. Dunk wasn't done dropping Eve's two older men. Like you said, even some of the guards are figuring it out. And here's a perfect example of that. George, again, doing it kind of sneaky. Dunk figures out what this quote means about five, ten minutes later after hearing this. Uh, but yeah. here it is. A pair of grizzled men-at-arms were drinking barley beer outside a striped pavilion a few feet away. Well, bugger that. Once was enough for me, one muttered. The grass was green when the sun come up. I... I got the idea that one of them nudged the other when he saw Doug's like, hush, hush, hush. You know, yeah, that, that did happen, yeah. Applied to what they were saying, yeah. But the grass well, was no, green no, when the I, sun came up. That's a reference to the red grass field. It was green and it was red when the sun was going down, yeah. And then once was enough. Like one rebellion was, a, uh, yeah, exactly. I was going to ask that. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't fully understand what that quote meant, but I get it now. The grass was green when the sun come up, but red when it went down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Once was enough for me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a brutal, yeah, brutal battle. No one wants to repeat that, especially being on the losing side. Now we're at the reveal. Dunk asked to speak with John the Fiddler as he's searching for egg. And of course, Damon's like, I'll send my men to help. He's like, your men, huh? You know, it's like just it's just like becoming more and more clear. So fittingly, too, the moment where Damon II's identity is spoken aloud comes with a mention of his eyes being similar to Egg's, which, of course, casts our mind back to the reveal of Egg's reveal and his eyes back in the first short story. By the way, a very similar, I was going to point this out, another example of George, like right before there's an interruption. Remember Egg in the first book, the Fossaway, Stefan Fossaway yeah. was like running down all the Targaryens and he's about to get to Egg when Egg burst in the door. <laughs> Don't, they're attacking Tensil. We got to go. You know, it was yeah. right at that moment. That's really and then here, it, it's just about, he's just about to, he's all but said it. Yeah. But not actually said it. And Gorman Peak comes in or has come in and says, his name will be revealed soon enough. For you. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Cuts him off just before, yeah. It's so funny because Gorman is being like Dunk here. He's like, he still thinks that there's some mystery here, that they're still being subtle, that people don't know. He's like, don't yeah. talk, don't tell them who you are. Like, bro, everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> just like everyone, Dunk thinks he's incognito. Nope. He's as incognito as Damon. <laughs> like, y'all just don't get it. <laughs> You're, you stand out. Like, this guy's seven feet tall. This guy's got purple eyes and <laughs> wealth yeah. and all the other black fires are here. Yeah, just too easy. <laughs> In a hedge night on the dais, making toast with a whole entourage and wealthy armor. Yeah, he's yeah. not, he's not, the facade is gone. <laughs> and it's another, it becomes another recruiting moment, right? It's like, he's mad. Gorman is like, don't talk about that. And Damon's like, dude, he's going to be on our side. Don't worry about it. He's joining us. And he's part of, that's part of why Damon's so generous. He's like, I'll help you find egg. You know, then he offers him a horse. And he's like, and Dunk still says no, even though he really needs a horse right now. Yeah. And this is kind of similar to Rohan where it's she offers a horse even though you know they both offer him a ride and ah, but a, he doesn't accept their ride yeah this isn't just a recruiting moment it's a seduction moment yes it's you're right <laughs> it's both <laughs> <laughs> so gorman's like all right i may as well explain he has sort of the villain um moment where they explain everything that we kind of already know but the the main character maybe needs it summarized or you know and of course when you're reading this for the first time it's good to have this all summarized Lord Butterwell wanted a new young wife to warm his bed, and Lord Frey had a somewhat soiled daughter. Their nuptials provided a plausible pretext for some like-minded lords to gather. Most of those invited here fought for the Black Dragon once. The rest have reason to resent Bloodraven's rule, 
or nurse grievances and ambitions of their own. Many of us had sons and daughters taken to King's Landing to vouchsafe our future loyalty, but most of the hostages perished in the Great Spring Sickness. Our hands are no longer tied. Our time is come. Ares is weak, a bookish man, and no warrior. The commons hardly know him, and what they know, they do not like. His lords love him even less. His father was weak as well, that is true, but when his throne was threatened, he had sons to take the field for him, Baylor and Makar, the hammer and the anvil. But Baylor Breakspear is no more, and Prince Makar sulks at Summerhall at odds with king and hand. I thought, Dunk, and now some fool hedge knight has delivered his favorite son into the hands of his enemies. How better to ensure that the prince never stirs from Summerhall? So there's a lot of important points in there. Of course, that's the longest quote we've read, probably the entire short story. One point we didn't really discuss much, it kind of speaks for itself, the point about hostages dying in the Great Spring Sickness, that was holding them back from the Second Rebellion prior to this. But now there's just all this, so many of those hostages died of the Great Spring Sickness or just a few of them probably just died anyway because it's been, you know, 16, 17 years. Dunk has one of his biggest thick as a castle wall moments deciding, oh man, I brought egg into the... Now that really hurts his, you know, his honor, the way he... Because he thinks like... His job is to protect Egg, right? Like that's his number one duty, other than you know being a good knight and a good tutor to him as well. He brings him into the most, one of the most dangerous places he could have possibly taken him. So he takes he, he kind of feels responsible for that. On the other hand, Gorman Peak's reads here are about as bad in some places as as his take that this is all secret is <laughs> like, like Makar would not sit there sulking if a war broke out. Maybe if his son was hostage, but at this point, Gorman Peak has no clue who Egg is. So that's not part of his calculus at all. He's just like, nah, Makar is going to chill. He won't join the war because he's mad at Bloodraven. Uh-uh. That is a terrible judgment of Makar. Makar would, I, I'm pretty sure Makar would absolutely jump into this war. No question. That would bring him back, I think. Totally agree. Okay, good. Uh, uh, Makar, of course, partly proof of this, when Makar does become king and the Peaks have their own rebellion, which probably, they probably had the attitude of this one, like, we'll get started in a rebellion and people will join us because that rebellion went nowhere also. But Makar still led in person the siege of their castle and died <laughs> doing that. So, uh, yeah, he's not a stand back kind of guy. He's a hands-on sort of commander. Like, my take on why he's sulking is that he feels like he's been edged out. Yeah. He just doesn't have a role. Blood Raven, whatever, they're going to do what they're due. What can I do? He'd rather not get mixed up in it and probably doesn't care as much about court politics anyway. Right. But when it's time for war, when it's his family, uh, he's going to be all in. Yeah. He's, that's almost what he's waiting for. I agree. Because he's a chance to show himself up. Like, yeah, right now at court, they're talking prophecies, they're bookish and all that. Yeah, that, you can see why he wouldn't be into that. In addition to the stuff about his pride that you mentioned, which I think is totally on point. But yeah, there's this too. Yeah, you're right. It's his chance. Like he can show what he's capable of, the thing that he's already famous for. It's like, why would he, yeah, why would he sit out? In fact, maybe more Stannis parallels when you think about it. What was going on at court? Renly and Robert are like getting drunk and flirting with girls. Like Stannis didn't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. He did not like what court had become, right? But when it was time for war, we're like, wait, that there's a, there's a, uh, you know, Joffrey's not the real king. There's a usurper. There's a rib. Okay, <laughs> call the arms. Let's go to battle. He didn't sit back and sulk then, you know, when it was time to take action, he took action. Yeah. So Peak's explanation of the tournament, it also sort of emphasizes how foolish some of it was as he's talking about what well, he thinks he's, being all smart here, 
this pretext for lords to gather at a tournament, which is why we mentioned the, the tournament of Hall as a similar example here, especially since that was a prelude to possible rebellion, a rebellion that never actually got off the ground at the time, just like this one. But they show they go to a tournament uh, to chat. But the problem is, is the big flaw in that plan is you've gathered all these heads of state without their armies. <laughs> like they're all very vulnerable. Like as we just discussed, when Makar went to shut the peaks down, you know, when is that? Twenty years from now, he went in person. It was really difficult to start to to besiege. He had to besiege their castle. Even even a small lord isolated with no help, those castles are really hard to get inside, right? Like you can hold out for a while in a siege if you have a decent castle, and they did. So they exposed themselves. They left the protection of all their castles without their armies with them. And that is absolutely going to burn them big time here in a few pages from here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the counter argument comes from Dunk right here. There is blood, Raven, he said. He is not weak. No, Lord Peak allowed. But no man loves a sorcerer, and kinslayers are accursed in the sight of gods and men. At the first sign of weakness or defeat, Bloodraven's men will melt away like summer snows. And if the dream the prince has dreamed comes true, and a living dragon comes forth here at White Walls... Dunk finished for him. The throne is yours. His, said Lord Gorman Peak. I am but a humble servant. He rose. Do not attempt to leave the castle, sir. If you do, I will take it as proof of treachery and you will answer with your life. We have gone too far to turn back now. Just wrong, wrong, and wrong again, Peek. <laughs> so, <laughs> but funny too, before the wrongness, it's funny that he was like just told to leave. Like Plum Raven's like, get out, leave, go, go now. And now Peek's like, if you leave, I will kill you. <laughs> it's like, dang it. First of all, uh, I am but a humble servant. Yeah, right. You are not humble. <laughs> even a little. <laughs> and Butterwell and Frey are both going to disagree that it's too far to turn back now. <laughs> They're going to absolutely turn back. Oh, and everybody else too, right? Piss on yeah. that fiddle boy is going to be a line that tells the story. He's <laughs> like, we'll ride hell bent for King's Landing. And they're like, nah, no, we won't. <laughs> By the way, do you think George chose the name Gorman specifically to evoke the, the idea of Gormless, of the idea of him not being smart enough for all this? Maybe, but someone else made the point of like the Gorman gas and the peak, uh, Gorman gas and the peak thing from, oh, I'm spacing on what trilogy that's from. It's from, mm, okay. Va- maybe from, was it Vance? Okay, okay, cool. I just must have missed that when we brought it up earlier. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm probably repeating the anecdote wrong, but yeah, we did have a, a someone else made that connection about um, probably a reference to other authors there. Mm. Let me take this opportunity as these. What is your shirt? Is that a Blues Brothers? It is, yeah. On the wall? It is. Uh, it's, Sam it's and John, I see. Sam and John with, you know, it says... Uh, the Night's Watch Brothers. Yeah, Night's Watch Brothers, yeah. <laughs> just, they're already pretty well-dressed for it. They got the, the tattoos on their fing- on their fists, you know? <laughs> yeah, we got... Um, they're all dressed in black. Yeah, you got a compliment in the chat earlier on your shirt, Aziz. Oh, cool. And people asked about your shirt, Sean, and I told them what it was. You can say yes. yourself. Yes. Smugglers you can trust. <laughs> it's Han Solo, Davos, and Mal from uh, Firefly. Oh, very good. Yeah, I love that shirt of yours, Sean. That's an excellent one. Speaking of shirts, historywestros.threadless.com for a variety of shirt designs and other non-shirt things like stickers. You can also find the link at historyofwestros.com. So yeah, anyway works. There's multiple ways to get there. 
You should not feel like you have no way to find it. <laughs> uh, you can get a shirt that says good said. You can, or well point, or just history of Westeros. I have not put a well point shirt in, but you've been saying it so oh, much. I, I clearly should. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I also feel like I need to make Sean's catchphrase, which is, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of it. We're just getting started. We, we kind of put it off for a while. You know, there's podcasts that have only been around for a year that already have shirts. And we, you know, it took us about nine years. But hey, better late than ever. Better late than 10 years. Just better late. <laughs> Stop there. <laughs> That's my catchphrase. Better late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is true. That really is Sean's catchphrase. Let me tell you. <laughs> Bloodraven makes another eyes joke here. He when he says, "Who do you think is going to win the tournament?" He's like, "I don't know." He's like, "Venture a guess, sir. You have two eyes." <laughs> I was like, "You have two eyes." <laughs> Dunk did not know how well Sir Kyle wielded the lance, but from the way Lord Caswell sat his horse, it looked as though a loud cough might unseat him. <laughs> All the cat need do is ride past him very fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's also, I can't help help it today with the Simpsons references. That's like when, when the doctor said that Mr. Burns had every disease known to mankind. And he's like, so you're <laughs> saying I'm indestructible. He's like, no, actually, sir, a small breeze, indestructible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a small breeze could knock Lord Caswell off his horse. Here's George with a little wordplay in the next quote. Sir Kyle said, Lord Caswell did not know me. When I told him how I carved his first sword, he stared at me as if I'd lost my wits. He said there was no place at Bitterbridge for knights as feeble as I had shown myself to be. The cat gave a bitter laugh. No place at Bitterbridge for the cat who gave a bitter laugh. I, I, I'm sure George shows bitter on purpose there. Like there's so many types of laugh. You know, he could have put there cynical or sardonic or rueful, but he's like, no, I'm going to go. It's not rueful bridge. It's Bitterbridge. Maybe that so. was just lazy alliteration. You just <laughs> use the same words. <laughs> Bitterbridge, bitter laugh, you know, yeah. Here's, I make good rhymes with my rhymes. <laughs> Here's another one exchange between Plum, Raven, and Dunk. He says, what do you know of egg? I know the eggs do well to stay out of frying pans, said Plum. <laughs> Whitewells is not a healthy place for the boy. Which again fits with the heat of the day too, so... Oh. Oh, good call, one. yeah. <laughs> and this... Yeah, uh, Blood Raven got the other egg out of the heat. Oh, you're right. He stole it right out of there. You're totally right. <laughs> he snatched that right out. That's hilarious. Uh, and then I love this moment when the, the snail is like brainstorming like terrible sigils <laughs> for Dunk to look fearsome. I love this line. Oh, yeah. Here it is. I call it the foul brainstorm. <laughs> Hangman is grim enough, I grant you, but, well, he's hanging, isn't he? <laughs> Dead and defeated. Something fiercer is required. A bear's head, mayhaps. A skull. Or three skulls, better still. A babe impaled on a spear. <laughs> and you should let your hair grow long and cultivate a beard. The wilder and more unkempt, the better. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, oh, I know, a babe. A, a, a babe impaled on a spear. Oh, a spear. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It's awesome. <laughs> Awesome, man. Like, what could be better? <laughs> Jeez. Makes me think of the, the Blackmont sigil there. Yeah, the, the vulture holding the a vulture baby. The vulture with the baby. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, I, right. I could have worn yeah, that, that short shirt today. Yeah, definitely intimidating. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's, it's, and you root against that. You like, uh, yeah, you want the other guy to win. 
but you might be, you might be like, oh, but that guy's scary. So he's probably dangerous. Is uh, people believing in sigils? Like you lean into that. Like if it works, it shouldn't work, but it does. Like if they're going to think the snail guy sucks, then the babe impaled upon the spear guy is fearsome. That's how it works. Even if it's all just an act. So a sucker is born every minute, they say, but maybe two suckers are born every minute in Westeros. Yep. 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 On our discord, Josh, a.k.a. Chatting Myth, mentioned, I was thinking about this when you were talking about the Jacobite Risings. George is really good friends with Diana Gabaldon, who is the author of the Outlander series, whose first two books focus on Bonnie Prince Charles and the Rising of 1745. Right on. That's cool. Little little connection there. George is... I love reading about authors putting Easter eggs from other authors in their books. Like we, we noticed the historical parallels, things like that is kind of like the Jack Vance, the Gormenghast thing. Uh, I'm not even sure I have the right author for that one, but we certainly cited Jack Vance and Gormenghast at times if they're not the same reference and plenty of other references. I personally know the historical stuff better, which is why it's really awesome when y'all illuminate us on these connections that we aren't always uh, able to catch. So community effort as always. Nina wrote up, a little uh, batch of examples of Mystery oh, Nights. here it is, just real quick. It is the Gormenghast series is a series by Mervyn Peak. Mervyn Peak, that's what it was. Okay, yeah, I didn't feel right calling that Vance. Yeah. That whole time you kept saying it, I thought you were talking about Gormenghast. Oh, I was like, like yeah. two names. Yeah, well, yeah, about <laughs> a gas. Was like a gas. I know, Gormenghast <laughs> is a weird word, right? Yeah, Gormenghast. Yeah. <laughs> One word, yeah. So here's a brief rundown of Mystery Nights and A Song of Ice and Fire. There are certainly more that haven't been written about because it's a somewhat, you know, it's a recurring thing. Certainly, like, Dunk talks about how people like Mystery Nights. So clearly, that means it has to be a somewhat normal thing. The rundown of Mystery Nights. Yeah, rundown of Mystery Nights and A Song My of Ice and Fire. My favorite is first. Right on. John Keel Dart, the one who competed at the War for the White Cloaks as the Serpent in Scarlet. Um, she wasn't a formal knight, and she's the one who eventually, obviously, became one of Queen Alisande's bodyguards. So basically a king's guard, but more of a queen's guard. Yes. You know, the skill without quite the honorific title, but, you know, very much earned. Then we have Balon Targaryen, who competed at the tourney of, at Old Oak as the Silver Fool. Uh, he was not actually a knight yet, but he was knighted for doing that. Any kind of cool way to earn your spurs, I suppose. Aemon the Dragon Knight, one of the most famous knights ever, competed as the Knight of Tears. And he, that's just so he could name his own sister, the Queen of Love and Beauty, sort of helping to dispel the notion that she was his lover, although that may have worked against him here. This doesn't actually... This is not something you... Naming your own sister Queen of Love and Beauty probably makes the opposite case. So I don't know. This may not have been the wisest move on his part <laughs> in terms of dispelling those rumors. But it was impressive nonetheless and a great example of mystery knightdom. Barristan Selmy, mystery knight twice, at least. Uh, two that we know of, probably just the two. He probably would have thought of the others. But first time at the age of 10, which is the famous time where he got his nickname Bold for showing up there. He couldn't even hold his lance up. Um, you know, bold boy. And of course, it was Duncan the Small who gave him that title. What was the other time? The second one is he's age 16 when he is uh, at the, the so-called winter tournament at King's Landing where he, he, quote, performed great feats of prowess defeating Prince Duncan the Small and Sir Duncan the Tall, who was Lord Commander of the Kingsguard at that point. And he was also not a knight yet, but he was knighted 
kind of like Balon, he got his knighthood at this tournament, and it was by Egg, who was king at the time. So King yeah. Egg on the fifth by then. So that's pretty cool, huh? Barristan's wrapped up in all this. Not only that, but Barristan's the one who killed Maylis Blackfire, as we just talked about earlier, the one who kills Stannis Renly and, and uh, Robert's granddad. We have Simon Toyne of the famous slash infamous Toyne family. Simon himself was the leader of the Kingswood Brotherhood, or one of the leaders of it, and he... Uh, competed in uh, the Storm's End tournament in that era before being beaten and unmasked by Rhaegar. But I guess because he was, because of honor rules and because he was allowed to compete, they let him go because he wasn't arrested there. I guess just, I don't know. Chivalry causes weird things (laughs) to happen sometimes. (laughs) Uh, The so-called Bastard of Uplands, uh, who competed at a tournament in Old Town as the Mystery Knight Black Shield. Barristan Selmy beat him and exposed him. Then, of course, the most famous example of all is Liana as the Knight of the Lapping Tree. Cora on the screen now. Different. Oh, second kitty showing up. I'm surrounded. The third one might step on a computer at any minute. (laughs) (laughs) They're all here. Final note, mystery knights are a real historical phenomenon, too. Just like pretender coinage, so are mystery knights real. Uh, Nina writes us an example. The young King Henry VIII, the Henry VIII, once disguised himself along with a companion. So they were double mystery knights. Uh, this was just a small tournament that he entered and, you know, like a gentleman's tournament. He was going really well and he was getting praised, apparently. The disguised Henry was getting, you know, accolades until his likewise disguised companion got hurt I mean, it is a joust. These things happen. And someone yelled out, God save the king. And <laughs> people thought he was the one hurt because I guess people were suspicious that he was there. So he's like, no, I'm not the one. It's me. I'm the friend. And so he had to reveal himself. <laughs> 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 so I was like, no, I'm not the one hurt. It's just my friend here. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. No problem. Uh, and then Edward III also twice disguised himself and competed in tournaments as a simple knight named Sir Lionel. And Lionel is uh, meant to be a tribute to the Lions of England, you know, the sigil and, our, and Arthur, uh, Arthurian uh, stuff as well. That's pretty cool. There's probably lots more examples of Mystery Knights in the real world, but that's, those are some really uh, good examples to uh, set it all up. But I encourage you all to send us other examples, if you know of them, we might read them aloud because I do love hearing real-world parallels. Also, other examples of pretender coins or anything else you think is relevant to this story in any fashion, uh, send it to us and we will shout it out if we find it uh, to be on point enough. So uh, that should about do it for today. Any final thoughts, Sean, or you want to wave the cats at the screen? <laughs> Yeah, I've got Cora in my arms here. She's just so well-behaved. I was commenting. Yeah. <laughs> she just has one arm, and she's just in the crook of his arm. That's so nice. This, this is her facade. You should see when she gets riled up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, thanks to everybody. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Ashea. Thanks, Nina. Thanks to our Facebook mods. Thanks to everyone who came live and uh, participated in the chat. Including our audience. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, we by have the a, way, I... Oh, go ahead. I, I pointed this out, of, I don't know, a few episodes ago that I, I try to read all the comments, but both the, the comments on the YouTube video, but also the live chat. So I don't know if you have questions for me or if you want me to follow you on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, let me know. Hit me up. Right on. Yeah, at Dancing Sean, definitely do that. Also, like I said, any of our 
discussion places, Flick, Facebook, Slack, Discord, Twitter, email. Yeah, all those are great. Uh, thanks as well to Michael Klarfeld for his map work and video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reedus music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular intro-outro music. Thanks to the Benjineer for sound quality assistance. Our friends over at Here Be Dragons are doing I Know That Nerd with Lady Gwyn of the Radio Westeros oh, wow. Dancers. Thanks. What are they covering? Uh, just here, I Know That Nerd is a recurring, like, AMA type thing, like they get to know. Oh, oh sorry. I was thinking there'd be dragons, but it, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah here'd yeah. be dragons. I know that nerd combo. Yeah, they're yeah, that combo. Yeah. That's what that's basically what he started doing was just I know that nerd, then they branch into the other topics. This is kind of a I guess I guess he has throwback sort he of. He hasn't known you then, Sean, has he? Yeah, maybe. No, I have not been known as a nerd yet there, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Seems like one day that'll happen. Also, shout out to our live studio audience for the second week in a row. Last week we had Rita. This week we have my mother. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. Hi, mom. Say hi, mom, everybody. <laughs> hi, hey, Aziz's mom. <laughs> hey, Aziz's mom. Yeah, all right. So next week we should be able to wrap this up for the mystery night. And then the week after we'll have a full Dunkin' Egg wrap. And after that, well, stay tuned. We'll be putting up a schedule on our various social media platforms so you'll know what's coming up afterwards. But we're still working on that as we speak as of today. So uh, keep an eye out for that later. And until next time, everyone, Valar Rereads. <laughs> <laughs>